You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> oh, this, this summer. I'm not even going to say this week. I'm just going to say this summer has been a roller coaster in so many great ways. And, you know, I just have to just count every hour, every minute, every second of my time because it is definitely valuable. And, you know, it's it's just been back to back to back to back to back. Um, and, and I'm not complaining. I'm just, whew, just, you know, there's times where I have to just catch my breath and take it all in. Um, you know, where do I begin? First off, I I guess I'll start from the beginning of this week. You know, I started my first week as editor of Eater Philly. Onboarding, woo, okay. It's been a while since I've had to do onboarding um, for uh, any publication. Most of the time, I don't think the last time I really did major onboarding was in 2016, which was seven years ago when I was started at Philadelphia Magazine. So it's it's been a while. It has been a while. Um, but it's it's it was cool. You know, I just wanted to like I got a brand new laptop um from the company Vox, of course, Vox Media. And so I had to download all this software, get familiar with all these different lingos and the style guide and all of this stuff. I'll tell you one cool thing about the style guide. So at Eater, you will never see the word foodie on any of our content unless it's the name of someone. But we don't use the word foodie. And so now I don't use the word foodie. Because <laughs> as a writer, to break a habit or not put something in your writing, you have to stop like saying the word, right? So there's a couple of words, but a lot of those words I don't use anyway. Um, but foodie is one of the words that they don't use. And so... Now I have made it a point not to use it in my vernacular. And I really did anyway, but it's definitely a thing. So like when people come up to me all the time and say, oh, goodness, you know, Ernest, you're a great food writer. You know, I'm a foodie, too. There is a side of me. There's this editor chip in my head that goes, don't use that. You know, so it's just, <laughs> it's a thing. But no, I mean, everyday people, I guess, like the word. But it's. You know, to me, I, I always had a little wrestle with that term anyway, because I always felt like, OK, there were people that were influential in food, you know, food critics, food editors. Right. And and, you know, I guess people on Instagram. But I always felt like the connotation of word food, foodie was weird because I was just kind of like it's food. So, like, how are you like a groupie? Like, it's just like everyone should be able to eat and everyone should technically be a foodie. Not I know what the connotation means. Like I get that people are like into food, but like the idea of that alone, that kind of culture is kind of weird. If you think about it, it's like when people say, you know, I'm a water freak and it's like, well, a lot of people don't have access to public water. So it's like, you know, you're, you're hyped that you like water. I don't know. I mean, someone can say the same about alcoholism, but that's like a vice. Um, but like, yeah, foodie is a weird term. And I, the, and I've heard, you know, I've had some great meetings and conversations about things, culture and the way we talk about food. And it's been really, it's really been insightful and thought, thoughtful. And so it's really have shaped my vision of how I want to cover food and, and restaurants, especially in Philadelphia. So that's been fun. So onboarding was good. 
I feel about 95% there. There's a couple of little meetings I need to still have to tighten some things, but I have access to the social media accounts. I know how to use the software um, to do my stories and get that done. I've learned how to, you know, work with freelancers, pay freelancers, the systems. I'm like learning all of the things up front. So that's been really good. Was able to succeed in two things, which was one, um, get a story posted live because I was, you know, it wasn't any pressure because it's like, you know, you're onboarded, but I'm like, you know me, I'm a, I need to do something. I produce something, but I, I was really able to get through my onboarding in a way that made me feel confident enough to write and publish my first story on the platform, which was the top Indian restaurants. Well, just the list of places to eat Indian, which again, to people who, some of y'all who might be in there, y'all feelings, why this time list? Why this time list? Because it is not the exhausted list of all the Indian restaurants, but the ones that I think you all should go to and eat at. Um, <laughs> so that was why it was what it was. So if you go to philly.eater.com, um, you will see that on the main page, it is where to eat Indian food in Philadelphia, which is 13 spots I picked. Um, I'm not going to name all of them, but you should go check it out on the website. There is no subscription to be able to check out Eater in Philadelphia. So for all of my folks who are like, always want to ask me where to go for brunch, where to go here, you are being told from me directly to go to Eater, philly.eater.com, right? So some of the good stuff that I put, some of the restaurants that I put that I thought was worthy. Okay, we had to have West Philly Love. So New Delhi Restaurant was on there, of course. Um, International Foods and Spices, for those who observe. Y'all know Rice and Spice is what I call it personally, but it's International Foods and Spices. 42nd in Walnut Street is where that's at. Of course, I had Vita from my Center City Girls. People who don't really want to do the Indian Buffet want a nice sit-down dinner that's intimate. That's on 19th and Chestnut. Um, you know, I got Amas. South Indian Cuisine, which is in multiple locations. You can find that all across the city. And Amas is a brand new situation. Karma, of course, is a classic and old city. Um, you got the Desi Chat House, which is another West Philly spot. So many great places. So check it out. Philly.eater.com. It should be on the front page. And also on the front page is my big announcement. Eater names Ernest Owens as editor of Eater Philly, which was dope. Um, it's kind of funny, like eater, let me be mature. Um, so they tell you all what I'm doing and you know, the, the subtitle is Owens will over oversee all of eater Philly's coverage, which is, um, exciting. I'm humbled. It's been a really good time. I've been, um, you know, just excited about all the great opportunities and things that's coming, updating these lists, going to new restaurants, um, trying new things and just really, you know, taking it all in. I earlier the, earlier last week there was the James Beard Award uh, Award celebration for the Philadelphia winner. So that was Ellen Yen, of course, who won Best Restauranter. Um, Kalaya, uh, who is Knock, the chef and owner Knock, who uh, you know has those really great spicy dishes. She won for Best Chef Mid Atlantic, and then of course my good old friend Chad Williams. Um, and his wife, Hannah, who are the owners of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, who won Outstanding Restaurant. Best restaurant in America, y'all, is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, my favorite restaurant. So they were all three there. We ate food from all of their restaurants, tried some really great other food. It was at Fork, which has been a hot spot for me lately. I've been on the high street, hospitality you know, interest. Um, Ellen Yen is the one who owns High Street Hospitality, which, of course, has High Street um, Hoagies, High Street Provisions. A Kitchen, A Bar, Fork, um, also 
High Street, the restaurant's coming back later in the fall. You heard it here first, probably. Um, but she's just great. So it was a really great time. Great. There was a champagne tower, oysters. You know, and it's great to go somewhere where you can just get an oyster. Just eat as many oysters as you want. They had a whole oyster bar. So fancy. Um, but it was a great kickoff to the week. So it was a vibe. It was, it was definitely a vibe. I was really, really um, excited. And there's so much more to come. Um, and really fall in love with restaurants. So I'll start there. Um, one of my favorite places I went to this week for the first time was Prime Fusion. That is that Nigerian-owned restaurant in Grace Ferry. You all saw those pictures. I mean, it's black-owned. The food is popping. I mean, what can I say? It's it, it's it's a vibe. They've only been open for a few months. And when I went, I loved it. The food was incredible. The service was good. You know, they're they're trying to figure their their whole identity out. But it's a great African infused place, um, just great food, different types of food. Some there's something for everyone. The menu has it's a really nice menu that has a lot of great options. So if you're one of those people that's like, oh, you know, when I go out, I'm very picky. There's lamb, there's chicken, there's whole red snapper, there's all kinds of things to eat. So I really find them fun. And it's in the owner, he is um comes from he's he's Nigerian background, was an MBA student. He's like 34 years old. He's pretty young and he owns this really great restaurant. So, you know, I'm I'm I was a fan. I, I have nothing but good things to say. Um definitely think it's a date spot. It's got a loungy club feel late at night. Um definitely feel like this is I won't say it's for young people, but I do think if you're someone who who is looking for a vibe like i'm talking like you want to hear some modern hip music some afro beats um you want to see it's you want a good bar with some good bar drinks the vibes black and melanated folks this is the place for you um if you're someone who doesn't like noise this might not be the place for you <laughs> so like last week i went to alice which is the really great restaurant in south philly that is, is is very brand new love that place that place is really chill light soft romantic Really incredible food. These are two different places. It's giving Barbie, Oppenheimer, you know, Oppenheimer. It's it's it's, it's giving that kind of energy. Like these are two opposite movies, um, but you could do a double take. You know, maybe Friday night you go to you know Prime Fusion where it's lit, and then you might go to Alice on a Sunday supper like Barry and I did last week, Mr. Johnson and I. Um, so check it out. Oh, this is so good. I'm drinking this recess. Zero proof ginger lime mule, and it is doing what it needs to do. Let me just say that. Um, so outside of that, um, I was in Indiana this past weekend for the Society of Professional Journalists Future Leaders Academy, which a lot of you all had DM was like, Future Leaders, you are a leader. Listen, 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 I don't make the rules, I just enjoyed the trip. No, but I had a good time. I met um, some incredible journalists from across the country who are leaders in their own right, running chapters and different media advocacy organizations from across the country from various races, genders, different types of backgrounds. And it was just good to just talk and find parallels and connections and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, I was in Indiana, which I thought it was, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, which the same time was the Delta convention, so there were a lot of Deltas from Philly that I knew that were also in town. But they were in downtown Indianapolis. I was not. I was at the Drury Hotel, which was a nice like resort hotel vibe. I must say, 
I don't know what it is lately, but it's something about these hotels that are not, you know, on the other side. I don't want to say the south, the Midwest, the Southern, but these hotels, I, I remember growing up and, and going to hotels like this when I was younger in the South, but it's funny because I forgot about how common these places are. Now, the place was nice. The hotel was nice. Definitely was big, spacious, clean, all that stuff. But really what I appreciate about the hotel, because I haven't had experience like this really in years going out in hotels around Philly and around, but this place does, okay, full out breakfast in the morning. And I forgot about hotels doing breakfast. A lot of hotels, I don't know. I don't know. Hotels been, been skimping or cutting out, but just going to a hotel and it was complete. It was this great breakfast. So they had a breakfast buffet situation that was pretty comprehensive. And then this is what really got me was that they have um, a dinner buffet in the evening time. Now, mind you, I didn't eat the dinner because a lot of the food, you know, we had dinner reservations as a group. We had as a cohort. We did a lot of training and media training this week, connecting, networking, all this stuff. So I didn't do, I didn't really, we, we, we had our dinners and all that separate. But in addition to the dinner, they have like a happy hour pass that gives you three cocktails at the bar that comes complimentary each day you stay. So I was there Friday, Saturday, and I left Sunday, but I didn't, I left before the happy hour. So, you know, but I was, yeah, I want to get home, but I was like, damn, they literally had, I had six cocktails over, over my weekend there, you know, and they were nice and generous with the poor. They, you know, look, they wasn't tripping. So I was like, that's that's cool. That's really cool. And I'm not, I'm trying to figure out, are there any hotels in Philadelphia that carry that without, but also still nice? Because that's the other part. Like, you know, it's, I don't, you know, a lot of people, like, we have free breakfast, but it's like Motel 6. I'm, I'm thinking, like, is, is there any places like that in Philly? Because um, I haven't heard of them. I don't know. Maybe not. Probably not. Probably not all of that. Maybe free breakfast in the morning. But the dinner situation with the cocktails, I've just never heard anything like it. So that was very impressive. But you know, I went out, had a really good time. It was very, very um, inspiring, enriching. Because, you know, you all know what happened earlier this spring with my relationship with NABJ and the breakup and everything of that. And, you know, for a while, I was very beginning to be very pessimistic and cynical about national journalism associations in general, because there's been so much drama um, that's been happening with all of these different groups. So NABJ is back in the news because them in NAHJ, which is the National Hispanic Journalism Journalism Association, they do joint conventions like every two years now. Well, this last year they were in Vegas. Next year, they're supposed to be doing a joint convention in Chicago. Well, the two groups have split. They're not doing it. And there's speculation, okay, allegations, allegedly, that part of this, 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 you know, split was driven by arguments over the money about how much people were going to get from each side. And now there's some drama and there's speculation and there's blogs and the, the blogs are talking. Okay. The streets are talking and people don't know what's going on. Right. And so it's just like another hot ass mess over there. But you know, I take a step and I, I have to say, you know, 
like my, you know, I have a, you know, my good friend Joe. You know, there's a guy we we listen to and we respect, and he said, you know, it's the evil world out there. It's the evil world we live in, is what our um one of our our, our esteemed prophets named Future has said, and it is the evil world we live in, and so <laughs> there are things that happen. Um, in these situations where you just got to sit back and just say, you know what? I dodged a bullet. I've dodged many bullets um, since that breakup. And, you know, people have been asking me, you know, are you going to come back? Yada, yada, yada. You know, there's an election going on. There's all that going on. Honestly, I am focused. Like, what did Martha Stewart say that time? She said, I'm focused on my salad. I am focused on my book tour. I am focused on these new jobs I have. I am focused on these checks, these speaking engagements, my agent. B2, we're going to call it B2. Um, I'm focused on so many other things right now. I just don't have, you know, the ability to really say what, you know, because there will have to be some massive changes, like I've said before. But where I'm at right now, I I'm, I, I don't even, you know, the weekend at convention, I'm getting ready to go to Martha's Vineyard. I, like, I really have, you know, I don't let these types of situations and these these moments, these setbacks in time dictate my movement going forward because if there was if I was a necessity and a priority then then I would have been had reciprocal response I think sometimes people oftentimes when they experience a separation or a split and I'm not just talking about personal like physical relationships I'm talking about it could be professional business whatever they oftentimes are still trying to calculate their world under that under that under that whole orbit I have really done, I'm going to give myself credit for this. I've done a good job personally moving on. And I've always been that way. Like people who know me in my college years, even back in high school, I'm the type of person where if you say no, I'm like, okay, cool. But that's not going to stop what I want to do. And so this weekend was very empowering being with these other journalism leaders, just having these conversations and just looking and saying to myself, the world is bigger than whatever I gave it. And I'm, and in some ways, these moments in your life give you perspective and context for things that you don't see. And sometimes we fight against that. Like we're like, oh no, this is comfortable. This is, this is cozy. Um, this is what I wanted. This is, this is very, you know, you know, familiar. And so sometimes when you're in uncomfortable and unfamiliar territory, it might feel weird, but I kind of look at it as an opportunity of, I always look at it as an opportunity for something new. Like there's something that 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 requires something of me that I haven't done before. And that's how you get better, sharper, stronger, more creative. And this weekend, a lot of that. There's a lot of things I walked away with, connections. And, you know, I'm a deal maker. I like to go in and get some deals. And so there was a lot of great promising opportunities that came from going. And so even though I did it in the middle of my summer, it was well worth it. And, um... Yeah, I I got more out of those, what, two days than I probably would have gotten out of an NABJ convention in the last two recent, like the past two. No shade. I will say people that came in there, it was very curated. Everyone who was there was somebody that had some stuff going on in in the positive. And there was opportunities and connections and work that is being established. So, you know, it was it was it was definitely well worth it. And shout out to the Society of Professional Journalists um, for, you know, sponsoring, hosting me, having me come. But that being said, let me tell you one thing about one airline. I I'm never riding again. But the gag is I, I, I didn't ride it. So. Mm. Southwestern Southwest. I don't even know the Southwest Airlines. Child, never. 
Now, I know there are people who might be listening to this podcast that live in Houston and Louisiana and the South that might be like, what are you talking about? But as an East Coaster currently, um, Southwest is not my friend. Southwest is no one's friend in the East Coast. Southwest's whole airline is like stuck in the 1990s. And I wasn't even riding airplanes in the 1990s. My first time I rode an airplane was in 2006. Um, <laughs> true story. I, I don't know why any person on the East Coast would ride Southwest Airlines. I, I, I don't understand. They are the Gucci of Spirit and Frontier. Like, people talk about Spirit and Frontier, but y'all, y'all have not talked about Southwest enough. There are people that are hype about it. I don't like it. Here's the thing. I didn't ride it. So y'all know I'm an American Airlines girl. You know I got my miles, my points, and everything. Now, shout out to SPJ. They um sponsored airlines. So they were like, look... You know, they had a system, a relationship, I guess, with Southwest or whatever. But there's a program technology called Concor. Anyone who knows about this, companies do this where organizations do this, where they can set these parameters to basically allow people to get certain flights. So, you know, sometimes the organization might say, you know, for budgeting purposes, these are the airlines they want to work with. Sometimes they don't care. Sometimes they're like, look, we want to set. So you could like basically when you're comping flights. You basically, it's a technology system that if you have a bunch of people coming, participating in a conference organization, you're paying for their travel, you can set parameters to allow for them to access certain flights, but within a budget constraint um, so that people don't do first class or make spend. But depending on what the budget is, they don't, they adjust it based on that. So for whatever reason, the budget was set up for, I guess, people to ride Southwest. So I've never rode Southwest I don't think I've ever rolled Southwest. If I have, it must have been when I was really, really young because it's been a long time. I've done Delta. I've done United. And I did Spirit one time. Did not have a bad experience, mind you. But I was shook by the fact that when I did do Spirit, the flight was super, super cheap. But when I got there, they charged me for everything that made the cost of the ticket still cheap. But also, yeah. Also, there was a lot of turbulence on that spirit flight that I was on. I remember it very well. And it I don't know if it was their fault or I felt like I was in a plastic plane where was it because it was so much turbulence because the, the, the plane was cheap? I don't know. But whatever it was, everything about it was like never again. But I made everything. I made it on time. Didn't lose luggage. Didn't lose anything. I made it on time. So back to Southwest. So Southwest, I got the flight. Now, the, the, the moment I ordered, I, I had first ordered this flight, this flight was... The the, the 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 summit the gathering started on Friday at three three p.m. because check in at the hotel was three p.m. so they they made it coincide. So my mind was like, I need to get there before three p.m. Southwest only had one flight that would allow me to get there before three p.m. And mind you, the flight was a connector flight. And mind you, the fucking flight was at 5 a.m. My mindset was I was with my lit brothers. We was at Prime Fusion Thursday night. We got lit. We ate a lot. My mindset was, you know, if I'm taking this 5 a.m. flight, um, at the time I was thinking, if I'm taking this 5 a.m. flight, I might as well get turned, stay up all night and just take the flight. And my luggage was already packed. Everything was set up. Child, that night, like that night, I got hit up by uh, Southwest telling me that my 5 a.m. flight was canceled. The ghetto. So I was like, you know what? This is some bullshit. 
So that 5 a.m. flight got canceled. I called them. They they did answer. Um, and I said, you know, well, what's going on? What's the next flight? Is there another reschedule? Whatever. They said the next time would be Friday at 4 p.m. Now, remember, I need to get there at 3 p.m. I said, well, I can't even do that. They was like, well, do you need to cancel your flight? I said, absolutely. Will it be refunded? They said, yes. So they refunded it back to the company, the organization. So what I did was I went on American and ordered my flight with my lovely American credit card, airlines credit card, got my points, booked my flight. My flight was now scheduled from 8.30 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. So I was able to finish dinner. I think I finished dinner around 11 at night or something, got home. Did a cute little power nap. What was it? A power nap. I got up at like 5 a.m., but I had a nice little six-hour, five-hour nap, which was not bad. It was it was chill. Got on my flight, made it on time. Shout out to TSA PreCheck. I keep preaching about PreCheck. If you are grown and you are over the age of 20 years old, you need to get PreCheck if you're traveling. It's just in this day and age, PreCheck is a savior. And I will tell you to that when I got back to Philadelphia, okay, on Sunday, if it was not for pre-check, y'all, I would have missed my flight, period. I would have missed it. I would have absolutely missed it because I forgot. See, I, I'm, at a, I'm at the age where I personally do not like to be in the airport all day. I don't really like to come to the airport super, super early. I have lately been a bad girl and have been doing the I'm arriving an hour before the flight. Y'all, I know don't judge me, judge your cat. But I've been doing this lately. And, and this week I have some stuff coming up. So we're going to talk a little bit about what I'm, if I'm going to pull Mission Impossible again. Because I'm feeling like Tom Cruise, except I'm not a part of any coach or anything. I'm just saying with the flights. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I, um, okay. So I, I booked the flight with American. My logic was take the flight, Ernest. Fuck it, get your points. Hey, they can reimburse you for whatever. If there's over, I don't care. I just, I just can't do this. I cannot do Southwest. So I booked the American flight, got there on time. Everything was cool. Everything was cute. Made it into my hotel, got the check-in early at 1.30 p.m., got real nice and settled, had a cute lunch. I ate at a place called Firebirds. I don't know if that's a chain restaurant, but I don't know. Them Indiana prices were hitting, baby. They were really, really low. I was having like VIP martini, pineapple. First of all, pause. I digress, but whatever. Is it just me, but is it all these little chain restaurants got a pineapple type of martini fruity cocktail? Del Frisco's has the VIP. Capital Grill has some pineapple infused cocktail in a martini glass. Um, I think McCormick and Schmitz has one too. And then, of course, let I not digress, Firebird has one. And if you've gone out to these restaurants, any of them, you know what I'm talking about. But it's something about there's like this culture of these these pineapple infused vodka martini drinks that I love personally. But I'm just like everywhere I go, no matter which of these little steakhouse or restaurants, it is always this this, this drink. Well, mind you, this place had um, happy hours rates, $7. And I'm looking like these cocktails in Philly are around $15, $17, $16. Listen, three of them, please. Anyway, I had a good time. But the food was good over there. It was cheap. It was just like, I, I really appreciate Indiana prices. But see how this say, Southwest, y'all some bullshit. Connector flights, no nonstops. It was, it was a mess. I would have been screwed. And matter of fact, a couple of people I know who was a part of the conference or the, the gathering, they did not 
they, I guess for whatever reasons, maybe financial reasons, that they did not, you know, was able to switch and get a new flight or, or do the reimbursement thing for whatever reason. And so they had to rock with whatever Southwest was doing because of the fact that, the, you know, that was the full, it was already paid for. As a result, a lot of them missed some of those people. It wasn't that many, but a couple of them missed the whole first day, the Friday, which in my opinion was the day for everybody to get to know each other, introduce themselves, tell their stories. And so I was like, damn. But I say all this to say Southwest, child, um, never again, never again. And see, it was not meant to happen. See, the doll could could not ride Southwest. God wasn't going to allow it to happen. Look at me, a hot ass mess. I'm teasing. But it was not meant for me to ride Southwest. It just was not meant. It was not in the cards. And even when I ordered, I was like, this isn't me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was free. Um, but none, but you know, long story short, American Airlines, baby, we got them points. You know, I'm close to platinum. I'm like a couple of miles away from getting platinum status for those who observe and know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm in gold and I'm a gold, you know, I'm a gold advantage, and, and it's pretty good to be on gold because you know, I get my luggage, my, my luggage is free, and you know, a couple of I get upgrades, you know, if if possible. But this platinum, I'm just just going through the motions. Come on, book tour. There might be a third leg. Oops, I'm talking too much. But I need to just keep getting my points, my miles, my miles, my miles, my miles. You know, Beyonce be like, my man, my man, my man. No, no, my miles, my miles, my miles. I'm into it, y'all. I can't, I feel like a spokesperson. You know, you can use these miles to get hotel rooms, y'all. You can get these miles to get rental cars. You could get these mouths to get um, all kind of other things. Like it's it's ridiculous. Like I have booked hotel rooms. Like recently, now that I can speak, you know, when my 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 bestie, my homegirl, you know, got proposed to in Baltimore, baby, I didn't pay for that hotel room. I'm looking at. See, let me behave, Joe. Joe. Mm, Joe. Didn't have to initially do a hotel, but you know. Mm, Anywho, I wasn't, listen, I'm going to be quiet because this is a podcast that is listened to by thousands of people every week and I'm going to keep it classy. But Joe, you know, uh, that's what I'm going to say. Um, but but I am happy with the hotel. I got point. I used my points to get the hotel, um, you know, because it was a very, um, you know, I, I was it was just immediate kind of thing. It wasn't what I had stacked. But I used some miles and I don't regret using the miles because I was able to recuperate the miles. But I've been trying not to spend my miles because I'm going to build up so I can do something crazy, you know, because I'm thinking about, you know, maybe I want to go to Los Angeles with LA, go to the Grammys next year, uh, do all that planning and stuff, you know, whatever. I want to be able to just do a big drop and not have to drop anything. I want to get the whole like my goal is would be to have so many miles, which I do, but I'm building more so that I could be able to like go on a trip with an at a nice hotel and have a first class flight and like have all of the things, you know, and not, and, and not have to like. You know, be like, damn, I got to, you know, that's my goal. Look, I want to do something big like that. I mean, people say, well, what about international travel? Like, Barry and I have talked about it, you know, Mr. Johnson. I keep, I'm, I'm listen, we have talked about it. The idea of like, oh, maybe we could get these miles and go somewhere. But Mr. Johnson and I are having debates about where we want to go. Uh, but do we want to go? You know, like, you know, there's this, he has this thing about Paris I don't see it. I've heard things about Paris. I'm not too crazy about Paris, but 
He's like, oh, we could do Paris. I'm like, oh, come on. Why we got to be basic? I want to go somewhere wild. I mean, like, I'm going to go to India or, hmm, somewhere. And maybe back to Ghana. I loved my time in Ghana, y'all. Ghana was everything. Um, I don't, I'm not crazy about Europe. I just, I'm not crazy about European countries. Every time I went abroad, it was like, you know, you know, Central America, South, you know, South America, um, Israel, Middle East, Ghana. You know, I, I like to be places, you know, his first abroad trip was in Cuba, which was dope. I went to Peru. You know, I, I'm like, I want to be places that are like, that are cultural. I know there's some people with some, with some, with some, with some color on their skin, some real rich food that's that's original and authentic. Like I just don't want to be with a bunch of white people and dealing with the anti-blackness. And I know anti-blackness exists everyone in the world, but it's just some places that it hits the same as America or worse. And I'm just not crazy about it. Now, if there was opportunity, a business opportunity in London or something, I thought about London, but I don't know if it's that, like I want something that's really different from America. Maybe that's what, like if I'm going abroad, I'm going to feel like I'm going abroad. Everybody be going to Jamaican and islands and Dominican and all that shit. Okay, I guess. But I want to go somewhere where I'm not, not, that's not giving me all that touristy energy, you know. But I digress. I just, yeah. So like, we're like either we're going to do a huge situation where we do this you know, we save up all these points and do some international shit. Or, you know, I just say, look, I'm going to L.A. I want a hotel and I, you know, business is calling. I want to do something like really like, you know, you know, kind of, you know, here domestically. I'm not crazy about international travel right now, to be honest, with everything going on in the world. But, um, you know, we'll see. Um, well, I will say I did use some points for some some upgrades from Martha's Vineyard for us to go. But I didn't waste a bunch of miles. I used it for first class. Um, I upgraded the place we were staying at. A lot of this stuff was already comped, but I just added on my miles to like improve the upgrade. So that I did do. But anywho, use the miles to get the hotel. Loved it. Love American Airlines. Can't, can't praise it enough. Um, but yeah, SPJ was great. Indianapolis was wonderful. Got to catch up with my homegirl, who's a proud Delta and a PABJ member of the leadership team, my girl Brittany. Um, she's a new Delta, you know, so there's a word for that. Um, but she's new. This was her first national convention. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was there. It was a lot of people there. They have some new, um, you know, honorary deltas, including um, Supreme Court Justice uh, Katenji Jackson Brown, um, Rashida Jones, who is the president of MS of in of in MSNBC. Yes, MSNBC. Um, Joy Reid was there, but Joy Reid is a previous um, honorary uh, delta. And there was other achieved, uh, highly accomplished black women. Deborah Lee, okay, the, the former BET executive, CEO, she's an honorary Delta now. Um, there was a lot of a lot of distinguished black women who were honored. It was it was great seeing all of them. It was a bunch of red just all over, all over Indianapolis. It was cool. It was cool. It's like cool to see generations of black women celebrated and just all together and you know and i said to myself when i looked there was some video for kamala being there speaking i was like and you know what i what she sees in that room she sees voters because every woman in there is probably registered to vote undoubtedly every woman in there is going to vote and every woman in there is going to vote democrat like i'm about 99 percent sure right so it's smart that 
Kamala and others and the vice president, you know, she's going out to these types of gatherings and engaging these groups because these are the people that need to be fired up and ready to go. And and Deltas and AKAs and black women need sororities um, across the country. They are fired up and ready to go. They're the type that are going to get their church congregations, their co-workers, their campuses, their neighborhoods to vote, and they're voting all across the country. So I do think the strategy is smart, and it was just great to see that kind of power um, all together like that. So that was pretty dope. So, you know, this in between that, you all have been talking about my fashion. I promise you, I'm just trying to get all of my Renaissance things that I purchased or got or, you know, was in the group. So I went to the Poplar pool party again this year. It was lit. You know, the Lit Brothers were there. Josh, Gio, Jamarcus. And of course, we hung up with our fave, you know, Sharon. We all hung out. We was at Poplar. We was all there last year. They invited us to come this year because we was lit last year. We was lit this year. Y'all saw the videos. We were cute. So this, so I had pieces that, you know, this before I wore the, the what is like the J-Lo Grammys dress, um, which was my renaissance outfit for me, uh, you know, giving y'all see-through legs, you know, all of that. Um, there was various concepts and pieces that I was thought I was going to wear before we arrived at that outfit. And so there were pieces that were sparkly and we were like, oh, they like the sparkly top. You all saw me wear at the Poplar pool party. I was initially going to wear that, but that was before the sparkly hat got made. And so the decision was the sparkly hat couldn't go with that top. Um, And that's why you didn't see me wear that. Now, Gio had a similar top that actually fit me. Couldn't fit him. It was too big for him. He gave it to me. And I was like, you know what? Let's wear that to the pool party. Those shorts that you all saw, them short shorts, I was initially going to wear that to the Renaissance concert. But my Telfar pill that you all saw, the pills that we were the little ones that we attached, there's no hooks on those shorts. And I and so it works for the pool party because I had a bag. I had my, you know, padded leather um Telfar bag, which I could put all my stuff in. But the, we couldn't bring big bags into the Renaissance concert. So the pill was the only thing we put all of our cards, IDs and stuff in. So that was, so, so there was a lot of logistical fashion reasons why those pieces did not work for the tour. How, I mean, for the, yeah, for the tour, for the Renaissance tour. However, they worked, those two pieces together worked well for the pool party. So I wore it to the pool party. But that's probably going to be the end of you all seeing my nipples for a very long time because I'm a husband. I'm joking. Um, no, I mean, you know, it was it was cute. I, I wanted to keep the Renaissance energy going. Plus, that marked the one week anniversary of that Renaissance story experience, which I'm still recuperating and, and, and processing. It was an incredible experience and something I will never forget. So for those who are going, y'all enjoy, like enjoy it. Don't regret it. Wear the best damn outfit. Have the most fucking fun. Make an experience out of it. Don't, don't, don't cut corners with that concert. Like really lean in and enjoy it and really have a good time. But also, and I just want to say this, and I know people are not going to listen to me when I say this, but really don't yet, don't, I know it's like, I, I know like people want to have videotape everything on their phone and shit, but really y'all don't really be on your phone. I, I personally, I, I've heard some artists at concerts talk about it. I get it. You paid your money. You can do whatever you want. But honestly, I think for before, you know, she did her, Beyonce did the first act of the concert. 
uh, in the beginning and I did a little video and then I turned my phone off for the rest of the night because honestly, if you want to see what happened at the concert, then you should have been there. I think spending all your time videotaping an entire concert. I mean, there were people who were using Instagram Live, the Instagram Live, the whole concert. Like, I don't know. I just want to be into it. I, I want to be into it. And I just, there were, I was, I wasn't annoyed, but it's just something like now concert, like everybody at the concert, you can't help but like, why you trying to look at the show? Like, I feel bad for short people because I'm thinking about one particular person. They might have to, well, I don't know what seats they have, but if they're on the floor, you might have to stand in your chair because I was thinking about how every time, I mean, I was tall, so I could see, but like everybody was holding up cell phones and I was like, okay, y'all, between the cell phones and the lights of the show, can I actually see the show? Do you have to have your phones out the entire fucking time? My God, it's a snob in me because I love theater and like in theater, they don't play that. No, you can't have no flash photographies. They come up and grab you. You sit the fuck down, you watch the show and you know what you do? You tell all your friends how good it is. I wish we could do that with concerts. I wish there was like a policy where, okay, at the beginning, the opening act or something, you can use your cell phone cameras, but after that, let the media and the photographers do their thing. Because it's, because it's kind of like annoying at a certain point. So I don't know. It was a great concert. Loved it. It took me, I haven't been to a, a concert like that in a long time. So it took me adjusting to that of like a bunch of cameras, like everybody got their phones out. And I'm so not, I mean, so that's what I'll say. I'll just say to people that's going to the concert, try to be in it as much as possible. Like be in it. I felt really immersed in it. Like I didn't want no text messages. I didn't want nobody asking me how was it. Like when I opened my phone, like after like three hours, like it was like three hour show. I had a bunch of notifications, a bunch of lights. I was like, oh, this is dope. Y'all was really feeling the outfit. But I didn't want to be soaked into all of that. Because I want to give Beyonce my undivided attention. Give the queen your undivided attention. And also, when you have a phone in your hand, you know, you can't do the choreography. You can't sing. You can't really give your love, your heart to it. So I really appreciated that aspect. I wasn't that. And all of my lit brothers, you know, some of them were a little bit more hyped than, than I was. So they kind of took pictures throughout. But we really was just really in the moment and wasn't really making it a point to be like everything. Because, like, first of all, the way Beyonce got those filters and those lenses, you're not really getting any great photos off the phone. And everybody know he was there. And who cares if they don't know you was there? I mean, honestly, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like social media has got people that feel like they have to document every single thing. Now, sometimes you want to do a little show. A lot of times, some of us are paid to do that. So when you're doing it for free, I don't get it. Um, but other than that, have a good time. Um, other things before we get into some hot stuff that went down. So I won another award. Um, this one was really special and you all probably remember this whole saga. So the National Academy, the, I'm sorry, the National Association of LGBTQ Journalists, um, has their, um, Excellence in Journalism Awards they give out every year. And this year, after seven years of being snubbed, I finally won for my work at Rolling Stone Magazine, a piece that I did, um, and I'm excited, um, and it's great. Um, so that's really that's really getting excited. So this piece was for Jesse Smollett wanted to be a hero, but instead he ruined his career. And that was that controversial long form piece I did about like my theory about why Jesse Smollett pretty much fell into the hardships he fell into. Now he of course he denies you know the allegations and things, but of course he was 
you know, arrested and charged and, you know, a court found him guilty of basically creating a fake hoax. So, you know, it's interesting what happened to him. He's out here living his best life the best he can, way he can. But it's interesting that while even though he is making his way um, back into the public spotlight, but also still dimly lit, to be honest, um, this piece was recognized and honored by an, an organization that honors and, and, and celebrates um, LGBTQIA journalists. So that was surprising to me because a lot of the LGBTQ community, especially those of color within it, rallied behind him. I wasn't someone who did that. Now, initially, when the allegations first came out, I did because I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. But as details came forward, it was obvious he was lying. Um, I took a lot of risks writing that piece. As you all know, a lot of people, you know, was questioning my wokeness and commitment and all that shit. But at the end of the day, listen, wrong is wrong is right is right. And I wasn't agreeing with the cops or saying he needs to go to jail and all that. But I just personally felt like he should have taken accountability. And what I also made known, and you all know this, is that I spoke to Justice Molette, actually. I actually have his number. Um, so, and I also keep my receipts just in case people be lying. But I spoke to him um, way before the trial. And he actually reached out to me. He got in my Instagram DMs. And he DM'd me um, just about, you know, he kind of reached out to me. He gave me his number. I gave him my number. And he called me. We talked, this is during the pandemic. We spoke on the phone for like three hours and then we stayed in constant contact. Um, he liked my post on Instagram, a couple of my posts in, you know, we talked about stuff. He told me a lot of stuff. He told me his version of the story. You know, there were holes in it. He confessed some things to me. I'm not going to share those things. Not now, not today, not right now, but we talked a lot. And during the trial, you know, I covered some things for my column for the Daily Beast. There was a lot of stuff he just did during the trial that, I felt like undermined the credibility that I feel like he had made to me when we spoke on the phone. Like what he did at the trial versus what we spoke about, there were some contradictions. I'm not going to talk about which ones were, but I just saw a different side of him. And he was really upset about what I was writing. And he tried to play games because he didn't want me initially. He was trying to get me to come to Chicago and see him. And I was like, you know, boundaries you know i'm i you know he wanted me to come down there and he was like you need to come and report the truth and you need to this and this and i was like mm, i just feel like a lot of times you know one of the things i'll say is that as a journalist i've never really allowed myself to get manipulated or suckered by celebrities and powerful people i engage with a lot of politicians and a lot of important people in the media and in politics and one thing i've really made a point to do is that i've created boundaries because sometimes they think that you're their friend and yeah, there are some people that you can respect and admire, but at the end of the day, sometimes you can read between lines and be like, look, this dude is literally at his 11th hour, his 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 beckoning call. He wants to get friendly with media so that they can give him some type of spin. I'm not playing those games because I don't need to be in proximity to a celebrity or any politicians in order to feel powerful because y'all know who I am and what I do anyway. So that doesn't fly by me. But, you know, it was cute that he thought it would. Because a lot of times when you're also a black queer journalist, you're trying to break into certain industries. I remember at the time, I didn't have a Rolling Stone connection at the time. I wasn't right for Rolling Stone then. I was right for Daily Beast. And I remember he was like, this story should be in Rolling Stone magazine. And I was like, because he didn't think the places that I was writing for and that I still write for was good enough. He felt like, you know, this should be bigger. And he wanted me to pitch to like some major publications. And, and, and I was like, well... You have to talk. You have to 
you know, and I was working hard to try to do a, a real story or profile and he played games. And of course it never materialized. However, because life is weird. By the time the trial played out and everything played out, I end up writing for Rolling Stone, which is the way life, life is just ironic like that. Like I end up getting the right for them. And then when the trial stuff went down, I was like, I really want to write a piece that explores this. And really there's, there's insight that I know that isn't being told. And I used the insight and the, and the, and, and the things that I did know from him and reading his spirit and his energy. And that allowed me to really create my own theory of how I think this played out. Because the thing about him was when I looked at those interviews, when I think about everything that I, that I knew about the situation, he never was trying to play a victim. So you know like how Tucker Carlson, all of them on Fox News and all them people were like, oh, you know, he's trying to make himself a victim and this and this and this. I was like, mm-mm. The goal was never for him to be a victim. The goal was for him to continuously, in my opinion, look like a hero and give himself this level of courage. He wanted to be a fighter. Because if you notice every interview he did, he kept saying, you know, I fought the fuck back. You know, I, I didn't I didn't lay down and take it. You know, I, I did this. He didn't want the story to be, oh, poor Jesse got attacked. He wanted to be, you know, these, these, these Trump supporters, these mega hat wearers attacked me. And, you know, I stood up to them and beat their ass and I'm still standing. Like he wanted that. Cause even in the, in the concert he did at, you know, the Tropicana or whatever it was the, he said, you know, I'm the gay Tupac. And I was like, why are you playing into these masculine tropes? Why are you leaning into that? But that was what he was trying to do. He was trying to frame himself like a hero. And I thought that was interesting because of the context of black queer men, especially his character on, you know, on Empire, you know, all of the elements. It was that he was always trying to make himself be tough and stand up strong. And I think he wanted to be a hero to a lot of black gay men who are oftentimes emasculated and disregarded. Like there was a pattern here and I understood it very well. I I, I understood why he did it. Don't don't agree with why he did it, but I unpacked the culture and where we were in America and in pop culture. You you know, I said to people, you got to understand where he was at. We didn't have Billy Porter. We didn't. I mean, Billy Porter existed, but we didn't have Billy Porter on TV. We didn't have Pose. We didn't have a, a, a mainstream crossover black gay person that was young, attractive, and talented like Jesse Smollett at the time. We didn't have that. Like what he did in that moment was huge. And what he could have done, you know, in the moment could have been. Like we didn't have Lunas X. We didn't have all of these other figures. And it's interesting to me that once the Jesse Smollett stuff happened, you begin to see this new emergence of black queer artists. Like Lil Nas X comes out, you know, months later with his career, you know, Billy Porter. And I'm wondering to myself, could if Jesse just could have waited a little longer, would he have arrived? Would his career or opportunities would have arrived and opened for him so he didn't feel like he had to pull a stunt like this? Yeah, that piece is incredible. I'm, I'm just going to give myself my props. I encourage you to read it. It's on Rolling Stone. Um, it's award winning now. It's it's won a National Journalist Award. I'm proud of the team. Shout out to Rolling Stone. Shout out to Editor Chief. Shout out to the editorial director. It, it was a great, you know, experience. And I love writing for them. I, I I try to write for them. And when I do, I try to write something deep. So yeah, that was dope. Um, and you know, look where we are today. 
Um, but yeah, lastly, um, before we get into the hot tea of the week, all the things going on this week, um, and also your question for Ask Ernest, because we're going to get into that too. Woo! This question is very interesting, but I'm going to break it down the best way I can. But anyway, um, book tour this week, lots of going on this week. Upper Darby, Monday. I'm in Upper Darby, y'all. Monday, this today, if you the court we want, today, aka Monday, I will be at Upper Darby. Um doing a wonderful talk. Y'all mayor in Upper Darby. Okay, Mayor Barbara Ann Keller, Keffer. She has invited me to come down to Upper Darby um, doing a book signing, a book talk, keynotes. We're doing it big. The first 50 people between the ages of 18 and 25, so that's my young professionals, if you register and attend this event, you will receive a free copy of my book signed. So make sure you take advantage and you RSVP. It's still not too late. Check it out. Link in my bio if you're in Upper Darby. Or you could come to Upper Darby. We're going to be at the Township Meeting Room, which is the Upper Darby Municipal Building at 100 Garrett Road, Upper Darby, PA, 19082. Um, we're going to have a really great time. It's going to be dope. Shout out to them. Shout out to the team, um, collective speakers, my agent, all of them who really helped coordinate this because... Upper Darby is an interesting area of of Philadelphia, of Pennsylvania. It is not Philly. This is a very predominantly white area. There's a lot of different conservative mixed views. There is, you know, Barbara Ann Keffer is a is a progressive. She's a liberal. She is the mayor, but she's hit with opposition from some of these longtime conservative moderate people. So for her to bring me here at this time in this moment, um, and make that investment to create that space for us to do what we're doing is incredible and you know that needs to be more of that and with this book tour i always wanted to go outside of philadelphia and outside my comfort zone and so it's been great to go to certain parts of the country some that i'm familiar with and i like but others are a little bit more difficult to have these uncomfortable conversations and to talk about this great book so if you're in upper darby you know it goes down at 6 30 p.m check out my instagram for more details but it's going down Later this week, okay, let's talk about it. Wednesday, I'm going to be in New Orleans. So to all of my Southern listeners, I will be in New Orleans for one night only um, doing my incredible uh, book tour. We will be at Baldwin and Company Books. That's the, the, I don't want to call them infamous, but that is the bookstore that has been in the news because they was clashing with Essence. And of course, they fought back at Essence and, you know, it's been beautiful. So, um you know, it's it's been great. It's been wonderful. But shout out to them. Um, I'll be there. But I'll also be there for the taste. The, I think it's called the Tell of the Cocktail, which is the biggest cocktail festival in America. Is in New Orleans, and it is happening this week. I am going to be checking out some Uncle Nearest stuff. I'm going to be going to the Bacardi party. It's going to be lit over there in New Orleans for one night only. Books, book signing, book tour stop, meeting people from New Orleans from that I went to college, not college, high school with actually, and drinking. And if you're in, if you're if you're in New Orleans, it's going down. Okay, so that's happening. And then Thursday, I will be in my hometown, Houston, Texas, um, at the Barnes and Noble in Town and Country. All of my Houston listeners and even my 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 good Judy, Jessica, Jessica Anderson and her really great friend, her homegirl, they're all going to be showing up. My bestie, Jamarcus, is actually going to be in Houston. Um, he's there to support his family, but he's also going to be in Houston as well to come to the book signing. So 
if you all are Houston fans, want to see both of us, we're both two H-Town legends. We are going to be at the Bards in Noble in Town and Country. Oh, I love it. Um, And I'm going to be there. For, I'm going to be in Houston Thursday and Friday. I'm leaving out Saturday back to Philly. But two days. So, you know, Elsick, Ailey Elsick High School, the entire Southwest of Houston. You know, your favorite is back. I love you, Houston. Um. So it's going to be a good time. There's going to be lots of fun to be had. So many people have like hit me up um, in the past couple of weeks since that announcement. Um, but y'all better buy books too. Okay. It's not me giving the books away. You're going to buy the books and I'm going to sign them. I have to say that in Texas because everything is free or big in Texas. Um, so it's going to be a great, it's going to be a really great week in addition to everything else I have going on. Um, but this is going to be a very, 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 very lit week. And I'm going to maximize to the fullest. So just stay tuned on my social media, my Instagram, my Twitter, Facebook, for those who, who I've added, um, with all of those updates and fun. Now on to the hot ass mess that's been going on. There might be another indictment on the way for Trump. Now I know y'all tired of Trump, but we have to, we have to keep an eye on Trump. I call it, um, Trump watch. Because here's the thing. This man might be the Republican nominee for president. And I don't say that lightly. It's looking every day like Trump might be in the conversation. So as much as you can say you're tired of Trump, unfortunately, Trump ain't tired of us yet. So it's looking like a third indictment is coming. And the crazy part is, is that this one is looking very serious. There's some interesting conversations that has been happening. Um, and a lot of, a lot of conversation, a lot of debate. Um, you know, all eyes is on that Washington grand jury, um, especially amid signs of a third, of a possible third Trump indictment, y'all. I mean, the big question is whether or not voters or juries will get to cast the first verdict on Donald Trump. Like, this is about the 2024 presidential campaign. Like, are voters or juries going to be casting their vote <laughs> or the first verdict? Um, so a lot of stuff has been going on. But to be the interesting thing is that he is, again, in a serious situation, right? You know, he has been, you know, charged. He's already been charged in Manhattan based on the hush money situation with an adult star. Um, separately, he's facing federal charges related to that alleged mishandling of classified documents that he hoarded in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Um, but he's also told people this week that he's been named as a target of an, of this special counsel, Jack Smith, um, who has an investigation into efforts about his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. And the events leading up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol, which we all know is the insurrection. Now, he has received this notification, and this is a very major um, procedural step that will often lead to an indictment because that's just the procedure, y'all. Um, and we can't ignore that. Um, and he's kind of waiting to find out whether he'll be charged in a probe in Georgia as well over efforts to reverse uh, Joe Biden's win there. Right now, let me be clear. So far, he has pleaded not guilty to both of the indictments. Previously, and he denies wrongdoing and every other case against them. Shout out to my lawyer who teaches me how to make those disclaimers because we ain't trying to have no problems over here. These are all allegations and he's denied them. Now, my opinion, I think he did it. 
That's my opinion. I think he did it. I think that the way that the, the evidence and the behavior is this, it looks like something is funky in the water. Opinion. Um, but the thing for me is, is I want to make it very clear. This does not change the course of the election. Like this does not change the, the, the course of it. Because here's the thing. Unless there is a major... Um, Unless there's a major, you know, situation um, that's going to leave, you know, um, how do I put this? Unless there is some type of, you know, major, like if he goes to jail and he's like put in jail for a period of time without any bail, I don't see a situation, a reality in which he's not going to get that nomination. I do think it hurts his campaign because now it makes me think about all the times in 2016 when he ran against Hillary, Hillary and his rhetoric was, do you really want to elect a woman who might get indicted, right? Lock her up, send her to jail when it was about the Benghazi and the emails and all that shit, right? The logic he put out there was Hillary might go to jail, y'all. She might get indicted, do you really want to elect her when she might be in a position that is criminal? Like, I don't, you know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't talk bad about, you know, we shouldn't support indicted criminal. He was going the fuck in. So now all of a sudden, you know, we're just supposed to ignore all of this. It's supposed to be some mass conspiracy. Hmm, conspiracy. We're supposed to ignore all of this. We're supposed to just turn, you know, the other cheek. But it's like, in a way, I'm not saying I want him to get the, I don't, I don't want to say I want him to get the nomination, but if he gets a nomination, it will be quite fun for Biden and Kemp to say, like, okay, you know this man is literally running for president so that he can try to fight off any criminal charges because as president, it will be it will be hard to indict or prosecute a sitting U.S. president. And then the involvement of Congress on impeachment, I mean, impeachment could happen. It would just throw everything into political chaos. I mean, because... Who knows if the Democrats will get the House and the Senate. They could win it. I mean, they could win it. You don't know. They might be in a position that if Trump gets elected, I mean, he's getting impeached probably within the first month. And then that trial takes place. And there could be a situation where, given his criminal status, they might say, we do not feel comfortable having the U.S. president serving an office that is currently facing three, at potentially he could face three indictments and, and criminal charges. Like It's like we're electing an alleged criminal. Okay, like that's serious. And a federal one at that, like he's facing a federal indictment. He could be facing another federal indictment. All of this just is going to be a clusterfuck. So it would be might be easier for Biden to make that case and win reelection. Now, this is me talking right now in July of 2023. We don't know what's going to happen by the time we get to July 2024. So. I say these things to build up whatever happens. I'm not set in stone and buying it. But that brings me to my next point. What I am set on is that DeSantis is probably not the answer. So, you know, DeSantis is in trouble once again. He's in trouble. Florida schools are trying to make slavery appear to be beneficial in history or a historical history. They're trying to act like slavery benefited black people during that time in history. Bull fucking shit. We know that's bullshit. But yet, yet they are 
the, the, the you know the the Republicans, the conservatives, they're trying to rewrite history. There's been massive you know complaints, protests in Florida. The Capitals was out having their national conference you know not too long ago. They they've been speaking out against it. They're using their power and their influence, right? Really good. Kamala Harris been out here giving speeches. I have never seen her recently giving. She is listening. Biden is saying, "Go ahead, VP, you got it." She has been really outwardly vocal about this stuff, and and I think she's given some of her best speeches and has really shown a lot of passion um, because it just seems like you know she hasn't really had a moment, but these are critical moments, and she has been rising to the occasion. I think and being more visible, and and I think part of it is the White House really like leaning into her and her ability to connect and to speak on these issues personally. Like Biden, it's great that we have a president that is aware, but I, you know, Kamala is a black woman. Kamala is a woman who's, you know, for better or for worse, been worked through the justice system of, of, you know, our country. And she can speak about these things. She, she, she can. And people like her. Some people, the, the people that need to like her, like her. So, that's that. But, you know, it's it's an important moment in time. Um, even furthermore, you know, people ask me what I think about this Texas A&M University situation. So on Friday, the Texas A&M University's president resigned after she got a lot of pushback and a lot of heat over the work of this newly appointed director of its journalism program, um, which this journalism program was promoting diversity, equity, inclusion. Now, you know, in Texas right now, and even in Florida, there has been these weird bans on funding state programs around diversity, equity, inclusion. What the fuck? Like, they're just outwardly racist. They've been outwardly racist, but they're saying it, y'all. So people scratching their head like, oh my God, what happened? I don't understand. How? Oh, no. I need white people and all of the white people that I know and don't know. Stop acting shocked. Don't tell a black person you're shocked. Don't tell a black person how this happened. Please, like, just stop doing that. Like, I, 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 it, it, it makes me cringe and I just need y'all to stop doing it. It's, it's the most, it, we're, we're past that point. I don't want to hear the term. I can't believe this happened. How did this happen? What's wrong with people? No, 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 no. What's wrong with white people? And please don't ask me what's wrong with white people. Get your people together. But like, let's cut through the bullshit and let's talk about solutions. Or what are we going to do in our spaces to show up and do what we need to do? Right? That's what we all, that's what we need to do. We need to just be strategic. We need to be focused on what can we do to stop this shit from happening around us. And the crazy part is a lot of white people are comfortable, still comfortable, to be around other really extremely racist white people. And they... Talk about it and share battle stories of black people as if we in the same fight. We're not. We are in a fight against bigotry, but we are not in that same fight. And so one of the things I don't like to hear anymore at this point is when a bunch of white people tell me about how problematic another white person is. My whole thing is, what did you do? Did you throw hands? Did you did you did you report? Did you be a Karen for the right reasons? Did you report them? Did you did you get them fired? What did you do? Because the whole uh yeah, this makes me think about back home and Tallahassee, back home in Bumblefuck, Alabama, Dingle Hopper ass Texas, fucking crazy Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, or South Philly, or, you know, Nantucket. Like, wherever you are, I don't care about your stories about the racist people. I believe you. I know you got racist people around you. Because, listen, the racists are being super racist in front of black people. And guess what? If they really racist around black people, imagine how they act around your ass. I know they racist. 
I know they saying crazy shit. You don't got to tell me that. And you don't got to tell me what you did unless you threw hands. Or you got somebody fired. Or you shook the fucking table. But I don't want to hear it. And I really, I, I, it's time to stop talking and start walking. And metaphorically, stepping up to the plate. Put some fucking motion in that work. Do something. Okay? Stop. Everybody like, say something. No, fuck that. Do something. Do something. And if you're not going to do it, call somebody that will. Shit. Call a, 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 a John Brown white person. And if you don't know who John Brown is, Google him. Call you one of them and say, hey, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this, but I know you got that work. So how about you, you know, step up. But it's time for white people to use their resources. Well, many white people, if you are, don't tell me about who's racist. Tell me what you did with about the racist. And if you were silent, you were violent, baby. Because silence is violence at this point of time. Also, you know, it's unfortunate that we're seeing across this country, and I, I don't know if I've talked enough about it previously, but there's been a lot of DEI positions across the country that are, like, not existing anymore. A lot of these, you know, VPs and people got these special positions across Hollywood and entertainment and media. They're resigning. The positions are not are being cut. A lot of the racial justice programming that they were doing has been defunded everybody's going back to bullshit and i knew this was going to happen that's why i told everybody i knew i said look 2020 2021 take full advantage of it get it while it's hot because once it's not it's not and i knew this was going to happen and and i told certain people who i don't want to call them grifters but try to really center their entire brand around dei as a black person, DEI is important, but there's ways that we can integrate those principles into the work we're already doing. But also, I never wanted to be pigeonholed as a black person into being only able to speak on DEI through a very, you know, labeled lens. I feel like it's embedded in everything that we should be doing, whether you're working in medicine, whether you're working in media, whatever. We shouldn't like commodify it. And I feel like over the past three years, DEI has been commodified. And that is why it's been easy for legislators to, quote unquote, ban DEI, right? My book, The Case for Council Culture, is essentially talking about what happens when DEI gets fucked over. Essentially, that's what the book, I mean, there's various ways you can define my book, but I would argue that this book is a consequential narrative of what happens when DEI falls short. You can tell this story and you can educate people in different ways without letting these labels and these terms be at the front and center. Because at this point, we just have to work more stealthily to get these messages across. That's just my opinion. Critical race theory has always been embedded in the things that I talk about. Do I put critical race theory on everything? No. But if you understand the principles of critical race theory, if you, under, if you understand what intersectionality is, there are ways to have those conversations without necessarily saying intersectionality. It's a damn shame we have to do that, but people need to start being very thoughtful about and, and really strategic about how they 
are going to embed and integrate these conversations and these concepts in their work without putting a label on it that can target it from being cut. Because the question should be, do you want to be right or do you want to win? Right. You can say, fuck it, I'm keeping DEI on all my stuff. That's cool. But when you're not getting booked, when people are shutting your shit down, then that is what happens. But do you want to win is are you able to find a way to rebrand and reframe your stuff so that you can keep it what I call GOP proof, you know, for the best ways possible. And that's going to be easier for white people because a lot of white people doing DI work that's going to be able to slide through harder than my black queer ass. But, you know, I'm just saying out there to everyone else, it's time for us to start reimagining how to do this. And honestly, I blame a lot of white people and executives because let's be clear, a lot of black folks who've been in this work, that's been doing this type of work for years. We never was out here running with these labels because we knew that it would always trigger some type of adverse reaction. It would be the difference between whether somebody want to work with you or not work with you or sign the contract. I've seen, and I'm not going to name names, but I've seen certain businesses um, and, and corporations and groups, um, advocacy groups, nonprofits, that some of those groups got money doing the same thing other groups did, but because of how they worded it, that was how they was able to slide through the cracks. It's fucked up, but that's just what it is. So I want to talk about union scabbers. Um, because this has been a thing. This union strike isn't going to wait anytime soon. The September 18th Primetime Emmy Awards is most likely not going to happen. Um, there was a actors union strike in Philadelphia that included the legendary Shirley Ralph and other actors connected to Abbott Elementary. People are really taking this strike seriously. There are actors that we know, comedians, that are going back on the road doing stand-up comedy because they got to make money. And, you know, I encourage people out and about that if you see a lot of comedy shows or programs that are being created by SAG Afro Union actors, um, please go to them and support them because these actors need this money to continue to live. You know, not everybody is sitting around with millions of dollars just chilling and can be able to live without a strike. There are some actors that are real working actors that, you know, one TV show without proper payment can make or break their their livelihoods in a certain way. And I'm not talking about the major network primetime shows. And even some of those those shows, right? If they're not lead principal casts, they're 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 background actors, they're extras or whatever, not being able to work on a production or a show impacts the money that they make to live. So what do they do? Some of them are working at restaurants, y'all. They're back in cafes. Some people are, you know, working in theaters. There's a some people are doing different types of production shows. It's a lot of stuff happening. But there are also some people that are taking advantage of this. So there has been this conversation that there is going to be a rise in reality TV shows um, in the middle of this strike because production shows with paid actors don't exist. You know, reality stars, most of them, many of them um, that are not the Kardashians are not unionized. So there is no constraints. There's been previous riot strikes over the years and we've seen an increase in reality shows. But what we're also noticing, too, is the influencers and scabbers. So in union, to be a scabber is a negative word, is a negative connotation. A, a scabber is basically somebody who um, is a member of a union. And when there's a strike, they cheating on the strike. They basically still going out, doing stuff and doing things that they should not be doing. That's a scabber. So influencers, a lot of influencers, right? Now, influencers, social media influencers, a lot of the big ones who got the major TikTok followers, Instagram followers, 
who are like models and talent, they fought really hard to convince SAG that they were worthy of being a part of the union because they were actors, they were being on shows and commercials and things, and they wanted to be taken seriously. Well, in the middle of this union strike, a lot of prominent um, influencers have still been and have taken the bait. And what they're taking the bait on specifically is Hollywood. So there's a lot of major Hollywood studios who need influencers more than ever to promote movies, to do different things. And they're paying them good money because right now they can't use actors. So if you've noticed the Barbie um, film, there was some union, there was some influencers that was getting paid by Hollywood to go out to the premiere, promote the premiere and everything else and being hype. But this was also driven by the scabs. This is terrible, right? Because we're also dealing with a situation where media press junkets a lot of actors, TV productions and shows, they're not taping, they're not filming. So a lot of um, entertainment journalists and reporters are not able to do their jobs. But these influencers are taking advantage because now they're getting paid to market and advertise shows, movies, brands and other things. And they shouldn't be doing that, actually. But they are greedy and they also, a lot of them don't have money coming anywhere else. So they, too, are participating. But it's very funny, not even funny, but very disappointing seeing some of them get on air and try to justify it. So for example, Pinky Doll, who's this influencer? She, oh my God, I'm gonna I'm gonna mimic her, but this is how she she's on TikTok. She goes, mm-mm, yummy, 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 noodle, yummy, yummy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, more and more clean. Mm, mm, yum, yum, yum. More and more clean. Yes, yes, yes. She's mimicking something I think that's in in, in like I think Korea, there's like some trend that there was over there. She's black. She's Canadian. And she adopted this model. And she's been making money on TikTok basically doing this. It's weird. It's awkward. It's crazy. But now she's been popular and Hollywood's asking her to come out. And I'm just like, so you scabbing? I don't know if she's SAG Afro, but it's just, it's weird. And and a lot of people are, are just disappointed that... You know, they're seeing these people that they admire and they like that are playing into these types of politics. So it's 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 a lot. It's it's giving a lot. And mm, 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 mm. so local politics, because there's been some interesting things that's been going on. You know, I'm just going through the roster. You know, this situation. So so in local politics, there's two big hot topics. I want to start first with the with with something that is boiling up now. State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta. This is a familiar name. You know, he ran for Senate last year in 22, lost. Now he's running for um, Auditor General, which is hilarious. But one of the things that's been coming up is that he is, it looks and appears right now that he is trying to run for two seats. And there are some elected officials like State Representative Mark Rossi. Now, remember, Mark Rossi was the one who was going to be the he was the Democrat that was able to get Republicans to vote for him for Speaker of the House over Joanna McClinton. Now, Joanna McClinton is now Speaker of the House. But remember, it was that little tie and it was weird to the vote and Republicans voted for him. And he claimed he was going to be independent and she got messy that that Mark Rossi. So apparently Malcolm Kenyatta and him do not like each other. The streets are talking. They don't like each other. They're not like each other at all. And they've been apparently bashing each other in the press. Well, more so Mark Rossi towards Malcolm. But there's there's some heat there. Um, well, now Mark Rossi is calling out Malcolm Kenyatta and other people for this double dipping of sorts where in in Pennsylvania, right, you can run for another office 
while running for another office. So, for example, Amin Brown ran for mayor of Philadelphia while still being a state um, a state representative. Now, for whatever reasons, it seems as though the state seats while running for state seats is what's really grinding people's gears. So Malcolm Yacht is a state rep that's up for re-election in 2024, but he's also running for auditor general in 2024. So it appears that he's running for two seats at the same time. That's making a lot of people in Pennsylvania pissed off. Okay, Philadelphians may not care as much, but it is pissing people off throughout Pennsylvania that there are people that's running for two seats. They feel like these candidates should should really put their money where their mouth is and resign and run for the seat they want to resign. Now, there's speculation that Mark Rossi is showing interest in running. And is he going to, you know, live up to that that reality? Is he going to step down um, from his currency as a state rep to run for the seat he's being rumored to do? So they're saying this is a feud, um, you know, between them and arguing that they should be banned from running for two offices. So they're saying he might run. Mark Rossi might run for auditor general. And he is pushing to ban legislators from seeking two offices at the same time. Because right now, Malcolm Kenyatta is an auditor general candidate as well. The tea is hot. So these two appear to be going against each other. That's what it looks like, basically. And people call them twofer elections, which is when people run for re-election in their current position while simultaneously seeking election for another position that they deem to be higher. So there's some tension here. And Mark Rossi and them are duking it out. I'm going to be curious. if I, Listen, in my opinion, I think that on the statewide level like that, I don't think you should do it. Um, I don't think that they should be able to run for two seats because I just feel like they're holding up an opportunity to have a competitive race. Um, if you want a seat, resign for the seat or or give it to somebody else. But you can't basically do two things simultaneously, um, in my opinion. I'm not I'm not too hype about that. I think that's double dipping, especially if the races. Now, let me back up even more. If the races are at the same time. So with, my, with Amin Brown, I don't think Amin Brown should have resigned from state rep in a year that he wasn't up for re-election. Now, if he was up for re-election and it's, it, it coincided with the mayor's race, then I think he should have resigned from state rep to do it. But I don't think it should happen if it's in if it's not in the same year. So, for example, if Auditor General race was in 2005 and Malcolm got re-elected in 2024, then do what you want to do. That's cool to me. But because they're at the same exact year, I think that's a problem because basically you're you're going to get reelected in the primary. You're running two campaigns. The money looks funny. It looks weird to me, in my opinion. And the thing is, he already did this in 2022. He ran for state rep and he ran for he ran for state rep. And he ran for U.S. Senate in the primaries. So here's the thing that's a safeguard. The logic I think Malcolm has and a lot of these people have is if they don't win the primary, they want to they want to run two races during the primary. And then if they don't, if they lose a seat in the primary, one of the seats, then they can forfeit it. So I'll give you an example. Um, what's his name? Lieutenant Governor Austin Davis, who became the first black lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania history. Um, he ran for state rep while also running for a lieutenant governor at the same time. He won the nomination for lieutenant governor and he also won the state rep. 
he kept, he technically run primaries. So basically those seats were still in play. He won both of those seats. And then of course he had to resign from the state rep seat, which made there a vacancy and had to be a special election. Apparently Mark Rossi, and I kind of agree with this, that we got to stop having all these fucking special elections for seats. Win the seat or lose a seat at the primary and let somebody else get a go. And I feel like that takes courage. And I think there's a lot of political hoarding that's happening with these seats. And so I think I agree with Mark Rossi. I think it has to stop. You know, I feel like if you want to run for a position, you need to be you need to be committed to running for one position. And he said this. And so I I, I do believe that. I do believe that personally, but I don't know what Malcolm's going to do. But I think that the Democratic establishment needs to figure out what they're going to do because it doesn't look good. Other things that do not look good. Kenyatta Johnson looks like all the Kenyatta's in trouble. So Kenyatta is a city council member. Um, You know, he got reelected. He beat the allegations. You know, he was indicted. All that, you know, mistrial, all of the drama. Well, here's the issue here. Um, the headline reads, Councilman Kenyatta Johnson's involvement in the sale of city-owned land is at the center of allies' indictment. Now, this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Though Johnson, quote, though Johnson is not accused of wrongdoing, the indictment of a childhood friend has once again drawn scrutiny to the council members' land use decisions in his district. Look, without getting into the mess and all the names, I don't know if it all matters. Long story short, the, the, the larger speculation is that Kenyatta, once again, was like hooked up a friend. Was it illegal, not illegal? No. But was that friend indicted? Yes. He's currently running for city council president against Curtis Jones Jr. And, you know, there's been talk about whether Kenyatta or Curtis can 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 duke it out. And there was always a dark cloud over Kenyatta because of his past controversies. Well, this story does not help. I think this is the nail in the coffin. I just right now do not think, and I've been telling y'all for a long time, I think Curtis, John, Curtis Jones Jr. is going to win council president. You know, Malcolm Kenyatta, not Malcolm Kenyatta, Kenyatta Johnson is a very nice man, does a lot of great things, but he just has, his politics and his ethics are not as tight as they need to be. And I just feel like council president is such a serious role, and he's walking into a situation with so much drama that it just serves as a distraction. And it's just like, how many more of these stories are going to come out? Because a lot of this stuff happened years ago, but it's like, how many more of these types of stories are going to keep coming out? The reputation has been soiled. He has been able to maintain a seat in city council, which is, says a lot, right? Because there's always people that want to challenge him, but he has been able to maintain that seat. I think that's the victory. And I think that's where he should stop, in my opinion. I just, I, I just, it's just too much. But, you know, his team believes that he'll be able to fight through this. Because, quote unquote, the champ is here. Now, Carly Russell, because I'm going to get this out the way. It looks like Carly Russell lied. The detectives did their job. They looked into all the details. The shit wasn't shitting. The math wasn't mathing. There were red flags across the board. And it came out that what we presume to be a missing black woman might, in fact, not be. Now, there's been conversations about the boyfriend who people say look good. He's not ugly. Um, there's been conversations about, you know, what drove her to do this, if it's mental health. There's been all types of conversations about what type of work, what kind of purpose 
is her, um, you know, what's her, what's her intentions, basically. There's been a lot of questions about her intentions. And so, honestly, I don't care more about, I don't, I don't really care about this story. I'm not obsessed with this story. Um, as many people are, there are some people that are like, oh, we got to know more, we got to know more. I really don't. I mean, I don't think she needs to go to jail. I think she needs some real counseling and some real help. Clearly something's wrong, right? We talk about mental health when the white boys do it, but like I, she needs some support and some help, some real help. And honestly, you know, it's always this thing where everybody want to like mass prosecute and persecute black women when they do stuff. And I get it. I get that what she did was wrong and concerning, but a lot of the responses have been very weird. There's been just a lot of people doing the whole, you know, I want to take my prayer back and blah, blah, blah. Half of y'all didn't give a fuck about her before this happened. Half of y'all didn't care about black women or believe black women until this, when this happened. You didn't believe her. You didn't care. And honestly, the only reason why people cared is because a lot of black women and advocates, you know, stood up and, and drew and demanded the public pay attention to it. You know, unfortunately, it was, a, it was not true. But we need to get to a point where... These isolated incidents don't don't define the situation in this country right now. There are thousands upon thousands of missing black women in America. And here's the thing. One person told a lie, an anomaly, but that should not stop your passion and your interest in helping a lot of these black women who are really missing come home. So that's my stance on it. That's all I got on it. That's just what it is. Now, celebrity divorces. A lot of y'all been asking me about this, these these divorces. I can't keep up in Hollywood. Everybody's breaking up with everybody. It's always a breakup every five seconds. I mean, what the fuck? Like, Sofia Vergara, and I haven't seen her since Modern Family. What does she do now? I don't know. Joe Maggiolino, who they've been together, they decided to divorce, you know, and people are asking, why do we care, right? I feel like we're going back to the Brad, the Brad Angelina, you know, the, the, the Kim and Kanye, all of this shit. We're going back into these divorces. Ariana Grande, who we have not heard from in a long time, you know, she was married to Dalton Gomez, not to be confused with the other Dalton, but she's broken up apparently. There are people looking at the missing ring. They're saying she's dating this actor from this show, from this movie she's doing, Wicked, which by the way, they were, they were like 10, I heard 10 days away from wrapping up, um, they were 10 days away from wrapping up production on Wicked Part 1 and Part 2. There's going to be two parts. The first Wicked comes out next year in December, and then the follow-up is coming the following year. I've always wanted to see Wicked in theaters. I mean, I've seen, I'm going to see the musical again. I've seen the musical when I was younger, not on Broadway, of course. But, I mean, I don't know. This movie, like I told somebody that, I told my good friend Amanda, I was like, Either this movie is going to be fire or it's going to be dumpster fire. It's not going to be in between. I remember when Cats came out as a film and I told someone the same exact thing. I told one of my friends, I was like, listen, Cats, y'all, the musical can either be the best damn thing to happen or the worst. There's no middle. There's no such thing as a middle musical anymore. Like the Phantom and the Opera musical movie, it wasn't the best thing in the world. But you know what? It wasn't horrible either. Now, Lamez, Lamez Rob, a lot of people thought Lamez was bad. I thought it was a very good musical adaptation. Dream Girls was incredible. Chicago, incredible. Um, you know, Hairspray was mid. You know, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't like the best musical ever. There was that fever. Do y'all remember this in the early 2000s where every, everybody wanted to recapture that Chicago moment where 
Everybody thought they can get that big Oscar buzzy musical film adaptation, Dreamgirls, Chicago, like all these, these musical type films were coming out. And then I want to say early 2010s, Mamma Mia was probably the last, I want to say, major musical and Little Miserable. I guess that was too. But like it is kind of flattened. But I think there's been an interest to bring it back up. Cats kind of killed the vibe. A couple of other musical adaptations fell flat and the heights fell flat. Um, Hamilton wasn't really a movie. It was like, you know, it was on Disney. Um, but a lot of these other musical films did fall flat. I, there's so many that's come out that I might be missing a few. But, you know, Disney kind of did their thing with their musical stuff. I wouldn't say fell flat. I would say more so upper mid. But it just seems like there it might be, like, Wicked might be something special. But I don't know because I don't really care that much for... Um, I mean, Ariana Grande is cool. She can sing. I am interested in seeing what she does as Glinda. But Cynthia Revo, I have a mixed feeling about her. <gasps> the, the the Color Purple musical is coming out this 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 December. I think the Color Purple musical is going to slay because it's 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 Oprah. So I do have hope that if that does well at the Oscars and get all the good buzz, there's going to be some really good vibes and juju for everybody. So we'll see. But anyway, I digress. There's a bunch of celebrity breakups. Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, you know, over the years. You know, honestly, I just think people are bored right now. And so that's leading people to feel like they have to be invested in this drama. But honestly, celebrities, they're just like us, except with more money. Um, I do want to talk about this, these two things. And some of y'all, I'm not judging y'all. I'm just letting y'all know. Y'all, can we cancel Airbnbs? I don't like them. I don't know if y'all been following news with the building crisis that is happening across major cities like Philadelphia. New York is going through it. But basically, we're finding out that the housing crisis in this country has been fueled by Airbnbs and these companies that built all these office spaces to try to force people to, you know, office work. Well, guess what, y'all? Rent is supposed to be going down in certain areas in New York and other areas because these these owners, these landlords and these developers, these buildings are getting empty because people are getting involved in remote work. So the the remote work, you know, revolution is happening right now and it's impacting the housing crisis. Um, And I think in a good way, because I kind of feel like, hell, yeah. But like housing and security might be changed by this. So basically what I'm getting to is that. You all know, like about a decade ago, these big developers, there was all this tech, high tech. Everybody was building office spaces, big, big buildings, office space, co-working spaces, office spaces, shared spaces. It was this big boom. We work and all these places built all of these buildings and bought all this property. And a lot of this property was supposed to be, you know, housing for regular people. Nope. They turned them in. They bought them and turned them into these big, huge corporate hubs, put cough cafes in them, big restaurants, all this shit. And really priced out and really blew up the pricing, the the pricing um, scale. So in New York, the reason why Manhattan is high is because there's a bunch of buildings there that are not just for housing. So it's been harder to find apartments and affordable housing because of all these motherfucking buildings. And the same can be said for parts of Philadelphia, especially in Center City. Well, the pandemic has changed all that. People are literally moving out of these buildings and these buildings are becoming vacant. And these landlords and tenants are not being able to capture rent to pay their developers or whatever like that. So it's been a lot of problems happening 
based on this. In Philadelphia, there are three big buildings in Center City that are now cannot keep up with the rent and might have to be shut down. New York has shut down a bunch of buildings and they're all like having a crisis. And guess what? Tenants of apartments and places looking like, well, what does this mean? Rent is going down because they can't afford, you know, they, they can't make these crazy, d- disgusting ass profits. Now, here's where Aaron B gets in. There was some d- disgusting developers that was literally buying up actual residencies and using those residencies to flip into making them Airbnb properties. Now, there has been some laws that have slapped down on this. Like you cannot buy housing in these in these neighborhoods and only use them as Airbnb properties, especially when there are a lot of people who are fighting to get housing. So I need to tell all of you all, you, you cheap budget motherfuckers, stop doing this. Stop getting Airbnbs. Like, can we collectively boycott Airbnb and stop this disgusting process because you're hurting neighborhoods and and listen get a fucking hotel be an adult and get a hotel because what you're doing is you're 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 fueling housing insecurity you're you're fueling homelessness and some of the people who care about these issues talk about these issues but you're participating in this disgusting system the only time in my entire life i've ever used airbnb was when well, two times. One was for a friend's birthday party that planned it. I'm not an Airbnb girl by default. And also my bachelor party, my friends had set one up. This was like two years ago. I didn't know what I knew now. But honestly, I've never, ever really liked Airbnb. And my friends know this. I've always been a hotel girl. Marriott Bon Voyage to be exact. But I'll say this about this the situation with hotels and Airbnb. First of all, from what I've been hearing from folks that use it, Airbnb is not what it used to be back in the day. Apparently back in the day it was a, it was it was a hookup and I I do I used to hear stories about it right but nowadays because of the housing crisis and the rents and the expect the, the fees these Airbnb people are throwing uncontrolled rates and fees on people clean up fees pick up fees drop off this and this and this if you use this if you use that I mean they're literally charging people and at some point it's like so you're you you, you know it's feeling like the spirit of the business where you come in and get a cheap rate but then you get all these other things tagged on it's like well where's the hospitality in this service right like where is the actual hospitality like I get uber compared to cabs I I still get the uber Lift thing. I don't get cabs because the thing about cabs is cabs nowadays. I, I I haven't rode a cab in God how long. As a black person, I remember I wrote one of my first comms I wrote back in 2015 for Metro was how Uber was great for me as a black man because I couldn't get a cab in Center City. True story. So I really did appreciate it for that purpose. But outside of that shit, yo, nah, I'm good with it, yo. I. I mean, not Uber. I'm fine with Uber and them. I mean, I know they got their problems. But I'm just saying, like, I understand the utility of it. Airbnb at this point, I don't understand the utility of it. Because to be real with you, if y'all really looked at hotels and you really did your research, hotels are actually pretty reasonable when you think about if you get good ones. Like, when I've been in New York lately, I've been able to get some really good hotels at really fair rates. And let me tell you, it's coming with breakfast. It's coming with other little things. Um, I have the convenience. I have a good quality place to sleep. I don't have to clean up shit. I got room service. I got, you know, all kind of things that accommodate or whatever. But honestly, I just feel like we need to go back to the basics because all of these little quirks that we thought were good are actually not good for the environment, not good for the community, not good for black and brown people in displaced communities. It's it's bad for gentrification and it's actually bad for us as a society. So 
I, I just want to, for people out there who just don't know, has not been able to connect these dots, the greedy ass developers who've been pimping out our neighborhoods, buying up these crazy ass buildings. And I'm not talking about living apartments and condos. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about they're buying blocks and putting up housing facilities and getting subsidies from the city. See, I'm getting real technical here, but they're getting subsidies like they're putting affordable housing in neighborhoods. And then the scam of it all is that these units are not actually used for 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 actual um living for people, right? So if you're a college person just graduated from college and you see a property, listen, when I was looking for my new place when Mr. Johnson and I were looking for new places, I was seeing properties all throughout West Philadelphia are brand new and furnished nice. And I was calling them and being like, hey, um, you know, I see you have this this building. You got some buildings in your new property. Can I take a look? And they're like, oh, no, those are for sale. I'm like, but you just put them out today. What the fuck? And then I'm finding out that there were they were never available to live in. They were actually Airbnb properties where they can just make stacks of money. So think about it. Let's say you got a person, a tenant in a unit, right? And you got them in that unit for you know, 800 a month if you're deep in West Philly. Let's say that you do Airbnb. You got people and you say, look, it's $100 a night. Let's say one person stay there three nights, three nights a week or three nights a weekend or four weekends. And then you include weekdays. They're going to make double the amount, if not triple the amount based off of the, the whole situation. They're going to make more money having those Airbnb people there than they would having a tenant there. The problem is, is that where does the tenant go? Where does the person looking for a place go? And here's the thing. When those rates go up on that property, that changes the course of the property and value nearby. So then that actually raises the rent for everybody else who fucking lives there. Property taxes. Hello. It's a scam. So I'm not a fan of Airbnb. I'm not here for it. It's a wrap. Other things I'm not here for, I don't want to talk too much about this, but everyone's like A and I. Can y'all stop on with all due respect? If A if AI, A and I, AI, artificial intelligence, if we are concerned about it and we think it's a problem, then we have to not be participating in the distortion and the fuckery of it. Pick a fucking side, people. I'm on the side of I'm really not playing none of these games with AI as much as I can avoid it. Chat, GPT, all that shit. I'm not doing it. I'm not using it. As a journalist, I think it's unethical. I'm not playing games with that shit. As far as these new headshots people are doing, personally, I think it's trash. There was a story that was um, reported on that talked about, uh, I think, an Asian woman who wanted to get a headshot. She asked the AI system to make her look professional. What did professional look like? They made her pupils blue, her eye pupils blue. They made her skin complexion lighter. It is racist. It is racist as fuck. It's anti-black. It's colorist. And when I'm looking at these headshots that people are doing with AI, um, y'all looking lighter. Y'all, they're 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 fat phobic. They're ageist. They're they're doing stuff to complexions and skins. Okay, listen. James Cameron tried to warn y'all, but y'all didn't listen. Now, on Jason Aldean, you all wanted to know about my thoughts about the controversy. You know, of course, he's calling out council culture on his controversial song. It's called Try That in a Small Town. If you go to YouTube, 
to check out this phenomenon. It's got tons of views already. 15 views has been trending. This video that he has is very controversial. Um, you know, he's out here promoting guns. He's make it's, it's racist. It's, it's, it's coming at protesters. It's just trash. And he's, you know, talking about gun control, even though, you know, this man was a witness to a mass shooting in Las Vegas. And now he is trying to, you know, shake the table and make a statement about protesters, of course, falling into the anti-racism and anti-blackness of this and really, you know, trying to just, you know, it's just disgusting. But the crazy part is the racists are loving it. And the song might be number one on the Billboard Hot 100. He might have a major American hit. And this is also following all the stuff that was going on with Morgan Wallen. You know, the guy I wrote about in my book, The Case for Council Culture. How there was hypocrisy that this man said the N-word. And, you know, people thought he was getting canceled. But crazy enough, he's got like the, the highest selling album in America right now. Um, he's had a, multi, a long multi-week number one single his comeback has been ridiculous and the grammys and the recording academy has not yet in you know has dominated him but it's gonna be hard not to see his new album in addition to his other album that's been selling thousands upon thousands i mean the album is clearly going to go platinum it's been interesting to see that in spite of it country music has been making an interesting comeback but it's on this huge far right tip so it's it's been a lot but the country music cmt country music television uh, took the video off, um, off of their off of their channel. So there is some signs of hope there, but it's still suspicious, in my opinion. Keep your eyes open, okay? Try that in a small town, will ya? Now here's for Ask Ernest. So I'm trying my hardest not to name this person. Not that I don't think anybody knows who this person is, but let me say this real quick. Whoever, if you're listening to this show and you are an Uber driver and you listen to my show on Uber and you my, my show, my podcast, if you play my podcast on Uber, somebody, people come and tell me you are, if you are an Uber driver and you're a woman, a black woman, and you listen to my podcast, DM me and let me know because people have been telling me that they have found, like friends of mine, somebody I went to college with um, told me that whoever you are, that you was driving and they heard you had my podcast on and they was shook and they took a picture of it. They didn't even, you know, interrupt or anything, but they was just like, wow, you know, they were just like hype. So thank you for spreading the gospel because it is real, you know, things being talked about or speaking. And clearly it's, you deserve five stars. That is a five-star driver. Any driver that's playing my podcast while you're on, that is five-star work. So shout out to you. But this person, I'm going to read this and I'm going to not say names. Now, you who sent me this, you sent me your your, uh, your, your booze name. I'm going to need y'all not to name people because I don't want any of these types of legislations and things like that. I, I don't want any of that kind of hullabaloo. Um, you know, just putting it out there. So, here it goes. Dear Ernest. I have been in a relationship with my boyfriend for the past 10 years. Yes, I know I should be getting engaged and getting married, but tis life, tis bills, pandemic. Another story for another day. Moving on, because <laughs> I had to try not to name names. This is a Philly person. They said, recently, it seems like me and him have been having consistent arguments about 
you know, paying things. It's not that I can't support and hold down, hold it down for my man. But I feel like whenever I do, there's resentment from him. He doesn't feel comfortable with me stepping up to the plate, even though I, I know that he's been struggling lately because he's been getting less hours at work. Not going to name what he does for, for his job because I don't think that's relevant. I'm going to keep going. But there's been these conversations about 50-50 in a relationship. And I feel as though mm, trying to avoid certain terms, y'all, because y'all be not naming it. But I'm going to summarize it in brief. I'm going to try my best to summarize it. Let me look at my notes. Long story short, this particular woman who messaged me basically was saying that her and her boyfriend been together for 10 years. Um, They're not married. Says it's complicated, but says also bills, life, finances, yada, yada, yada. Get it. Well, apparently lately she's been doing more on her end of paying the bills, paying for certain stuff. She says that she feels like there's been some resentment from him in the relationship, passive aggressiveness in a way. And she's worried about it and says that he wants to do more. He tries to do more, but she knows that he really can't afford it because he's been getting less hours. And she feels as though, you know, the situation is unfairly problematic. I guess she feels like it's 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 based on the way that she wrote it. And I'm trying my best to read it. It seems as though she is feeling as though by doing her part or stepping up, she feels like she's being penalized, even though she feels like it's doing the right thing. So I guess she's asking me thoughts. So here's what I will say. I think that, you know, first of all, y'all been in a relationship for a long time. I guess this is new because of whatever is falling short. I think you need to, or the relationship needs to. I think you're, I think you're, first of all, I'll say this. I think your boyfriend needs to check his ego at the door. Um, Look, men, women, and everyone else, right? deal with issues in life, right? People can have anything can happen to somebody and, and fall short. I think hey, this is why the straights, y'all in this patriarchy is going to kill everybody. I think that, look, people fall hard. Women, men, both. You know, you could be a breadwinner at one point in your life as a guy and then, you know, your partner, your significant other, your girlfriend, your fiance, your wife, whatever, can 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 get to a position where she's promoted. I think the reality is is that that is what it means to be in a relationship with somebody. That why are there these gender rules on who does what and who should do this and who should do that? I don't believe. I mean, I guess because I'm in a same gender loving relationship, this doesn't really impact me in the same ways. But it shouldn't be that way for any relationship. I think that for whatever reason with straight people, because of patriarchy, there's always these expectations that, oh, the, the, the man's supposed to do X, Y, or Z things. I get it, but I want to be clear that if you're in a relationship that does not allow you to be vulnerable and to have situations where you can get cover, then what is the fear here? Like, If you all have been together for 10 years, you clearly love him, you clearly support him, I think that if this person loves you for you, then you should never have the fear that 
something that was out of your control, whether it's a layoff or you said the hours are getting reduced for whatever reasons, that that person will hold that against you and leave you. Because if they are leaving you, then that means that they weren't there for you to begin with. There was other reasons that were material. But this is what I have to tell these straight men. This is the problem. And to the woman listening, the one who sent me this note, I want you to take this and I'm not saying anything against you because it's probably not your fault. But this is what I got to tell a straight man. Straight man, I need y'all to figure out what your value is outside with to a woman outside of material things. I think a lot of women spend time, grown, mature women. I'm not talking about gold diggers, all that. They know what their role is. And that's the gold dig. I'm not talking about those people, women. I'm talking that I think a lot of grown women that I know that are mature oftentimes think about what they're bringing to a relationship beyond sex and material things. The women that I know, when I think about the relationships they want to be in and what they want to receive, they talk about they want somebody they can support and love, build with, grow with, yada, yada, yada. I'm not saying that straight men don't talk like that, but I oftentimes feel like even the most mature, educated, grown men, mature men that I talk to, they're in the, the they're in this mindset around defining their value by the material things they do for women rather than discussing things like emotional support, consideration and care, um, you know, all these other aspects that does not center around material things. So a lot of times when you ask, what do you do for them? Or how do you show up? They talk about why well, I paid these bills or I pay for this. I pay for that. They talk about all the things they pay for and things. And if that is how you define how you show up for somebody, not saying that that is not a crucial part of the journey, but if that's the way that you define it, then what happens when you are falling short financially, what happens when you can't afford to buy the thing or you can't get the thing, then what is your worth then? And you should know what your worth is at that point or what you bring to the table outside of just finance. That could, that should be an aspect, right? Dick dollars dominance. But that should be there should be other things that define how you show up and how you express your your sign of care. And so right now, I think the problem with this guy you're with is that I think that he feels like he's useless right now for you. Even though you don't feel that way, but he feels useless. And let me be clear, that is his problem. That's not your problem. That's his problem. He feels useless because I think he has defined the past 10 years with you as giving resources and material things to you. So it's like, it seems like throughout the relationship, he's always been like that. It seems like this is a new thing for you all. And so it gives me that he can always say, I pay for that trip. I pay for that hotel. I pay for this. I pay for that. You know, I took her out here. I took her out there. He's counting the dollars because that's the way he is learning to be transactional. And let's be clear. A lot of straight men do not know how to have friends. Mm. And the friendship they have are not rooted in actually anything emotionally or intellectually stimulating most of the time. A lot of times it's forced by by status. It's like, oh, we were in this fraternity. We went to this college. You know, he was my this and that. And it's not really about like, oh, well, you know, we had a love for art and we grew together and da da da. A lot of them don't have that. And if they do, it's oftentimes with, you know, family members versus actual strangers that they became friends. So a lot of times the conversations are really vapid a lot of times. And a lot of times they don't even know why they're friends. They just so happen to just be in the same space. And so therefore that that defined the friendship. 
So if you're looking at the other aspects of his life, you might find that all of his relationships have been situational and his relationship with you is where he feels like it's special because outside of himself, you're the only person probably next to his mother that he's providing for financially. If he, you know, is doing that for a, a family member or a sibling. That says something, though, where every aspect of men in this provider attitude is based off of giving things. So when they run out of things to give, they their whole identity is lost. He needs to take some time to figure out how to provide other things than things to you, like actual things. And he needs to figure out what his value is in the relationship outside of material things. That is homework that he has to do. You, on the other hand, I think you get it, right? You get it. You you clearly have proven in this dynamic that you're not with him for the money because you're stepping up and you're paying the bills right now. You're doing other things right now and you're also whatever. However, this makes me think of something to add to the conversation. I'm not trying to get in y'all straight people's business, but she did ask Ernest. I wonder if you might have, should have in that relationship been offering to do other things to help when you could and not put that burden on him for the past 10 years. Maybe there were times, again, not judging, but maybe there were times in a relationship where you had money that you had that you could have probably paid the light bill or paid the cell phone bill for yourself. He could have did other things, but you could have did some other things you could have did, but you just thought it was cute and you want to feel like a princess maybe, or you just wanted to be pampered and you just felt like, well, if he did it, he could do it. And I ain't going to complain. But what if it would look like if throughout the relationship, you could have sprinkled in some agency of your own so that it didn't feel there would have been this resentment as if you was taking something away from him because the resentment from him, it seems like comes from the fact that he feels quote unquote, and I hate this term because I don't believe in it, but emasculated. Like he feels like his whole purpose is being stripped from him and he's holding resentment towards you because he feels like you're doing the thing he should be doing. The problem is he should be doing other things than just paying bills and taking you out places. There should be other things that he should be feeling like he can do and still can do outside of this financial hurdle. I'm not a, I'm not an expert. I'm not a therapist. I have no license in any of this stuff. Clinical marriage, full disclaimer, have none of that. I can't get prescriptions. I'm just telling you what my observations are based on this. Looks like to me, there should be two things that need to happen. One, you should definitely have a conversation with him and let him know straight up that, you know, you're observing passive aggressiveness and resentment from him. You need to make it clear to him that that this whole role defining shit needs to change moving forward because it's not healthy for either one of you because this is what happens when in a relationship where there's one person doing this and this, that, and third, and everybody, I'm the man, I'm the provider, and that shit, that masculine performs. This is when the patriarchy fails you all. Because when reality hits and life happens, the patriarchy becomes mythical. Because the patriarchy isn't a fantasy that believes that one person is going to always be able to do this and always do that. And some people will literally die and, and kill themselves trying to maintain that identity. And then that's how people fall into depression and, and shit like this. And then the other role of women is the, 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 the receive, receive, receive. But that's not what a woman wants to do either. And that's clearly not who you want to be. So I think there's a part where you all have to sit down and figure out what else is there in this relationship that brings value outside of this type of shit. Because it's cute when it's cute. But when shit changes, 
then here we are in these predicaments. So, you know, think about it. Now, movies. I have seen Barbie. I have seen Oppenheimer. I have been all into this Barbenheimer situation. Um, like I said before, I've seen Barbie again. Oppenheimer, I saw earlier this week. Two great films. They have problems, both of them. But essentially, they're good films, big films, blockbuster smashes. Um, they're saying over $300 million at the box office um, collectively with these films. Um, Barbie has made over $150 million this weekend, one of the biggest, largest box, one of the biggest box office openings um, since the pandemic, the biggest since the pandemic. A big one for uh, Greta Gerwig, who is the first female director to have an over $100 million box office opening, which is epic. Um, big, big, big things. I mean, look, a lot of people have been writing critic reviews about the film and all that. Um, you know, I am on the team of saying that I think Oscar consideration should be for Ryan Gosling. I don't know if he wins, but it'd be an interesting nomination for him. Uh, his performance in Barbie is something to the imagination. Um, you know, Margot Robbie's Margot Robbie. She was good. The actors were good. It was a lot of great cameos. Um, what else? You know, none of these films are perfect, right? People are like, there should be more queer representation. I'm not going to tell the movie. But overall, I thought it was a really good movie. And I thought it was better than what I thought it was. And it was cute. And it was fun. And, you know, see at the Oscars. Um, Open Oppenheimer. Like, okay. Definitely given front runner for best picture in, in contention. Lead actor. Definitely going to get nominated for best lead actor. It exceeded expectations at the box office. Over $80 million at the box office. And let me tell you why. That's a big deal because dramas, three hour long dramatic films like that, you know, they are oftentimes, you know, Oscar baity, but they don't make money at the box office. But it's Christopher Nolan who has previously done other big epic films. So, you you, you know, Dunkirk and others. So I'm not surprised that he was able to pull that off. Um, what I will say about both of these films that I'm happy about is that it's the first time people got excited for movies that are not from fucking Marvel, not sequels. You know, these are original movies that are like first time out the gate. And, you know, I can see a Barbie too. I hope they don't do a Barbie too. I hope they just let us have this moment and move on. But you know, anytime a franchise do good, they'll make a franchise out of it. So get ready for Barbie too, people. Um, Oppenheimer is clearly not going to have a sequel, but this is this is good. This is good. The summer box office needed a wake up call because it just seemed like there was no blockbusters lately. And this this collaboration between people going to see both of the movies helped both of the films. Um, you know, my critique about Oppenheimer was that there was no Asian representation in the film, in spite of the fact that we're talking about Hiroshima and Nakasaki. Right. Why are we talking about an atomic bomb that killed Asian people and there's no Asian actors, nothing to that was my major critique with the film, in addition to just being another white man, you know, all of that drama, biopic. Like, we have a bunch of those, but you know, when it's when they're good, they're good, right? So that's that. So, even though the movie theaters was popping, I have to shout out this film on Netflix. What a fucking movie. They clone Tyrone. Black exploitation sci-fi at its greatest. An incredible film. Oh my goodness. I, you know, I I was like, I don't know, this might be corny. I watched it um you know when I came back from a, you know from dinner over the weekend um during the during my retreat. 
it was great. Great actors. Listen, John Boyega, he's a star. I mean, Jamie Foxx was in it. Other Tiana Parrish, great actress. Jamie Foxx, I mean, this is a good win for him because Jamie Foxx lately, his, a lot of his movies have been very mid and dud, but this was great, especially with everything going on in his personal life. He's alive and he's not cloned, you dumbasses. Um, great film. John Boyega, man, like, I've, I really like him. Like, I've really been a fan of him. He's a Golden Globe winner, by the way. Um, he's this British Nigerian actor who's just so good. And I just, I, I, I think he's really on his way. And I think, to be honest, with Jonathan Major slipping right now, um, clearly, give the roles that you was giving Jonathan Majors to John Boyega, because I actually think John Boyega could play them. I think that they're not too far apart. They both got, I mean, clearly, clearly Jonathan Majors' body is like another conversation. But John Boyega's doing okay. He's young, but he's also mature enough that I think he can take on those leading roles. I think what John Boyega does is what y'all think Michael B. Jordan is doing, which he is not. And <laughs> I'm going to go there because people really, I don't, I don't see it for Michael B. Jordan like that. I mean, attraction, it's waning. It's whatever. Um, how you doing? I don't know. It's whatever. But I just don't. The acting is just not stellar. I think John Boyega is really the one. I, I thought Jonathan Majors was. And Jonathan Majors has some potential. Why the fuck he's blowing it right now? Ugh. But John Boyega... He's the one because he's actually getting these nominations. He's getting Emmy nominations, Golden Globe nominations. He won a Golden Globe for for his for appearance. He's the one actually getting the critically acclaimed parts and getting award nominations in addition to them. That is not an easy feat, an easy feat for a black actor, especially like him. And he is just super talented. He's 31 years old. He's the same age as me. Um, he was born March 17th, 1992. He's won BAFTA, which is a big, that's the British Academy Award for Rising Star. He's won, he's got a lot of nominations. He's gotten a lot of wins, um, been nominated for a lot of awards. Um, NAACP Award. He was in The Lion, The, the Woman King, which was phenomenal. Um, he's done some good work. You know, Golden Globe, he, you know, he won for that for Best Supporting Actor. Just good work. I think John Boyega is is that star. We need to pay more attention to him. And they clone Tyrone was incredible. Don't want to tell it. It's on Netflix. Go check it out. Don't want to tell the film, but it's really awesome. Okay. And music, music this year, this week. Oh, was there anything that really stood out? The only thing that I was hyped about, but was kind of like underwhelmed. Britney Spears is back, y'all. Will I am mind your business, bitch. I. It's cute, but it's not, it's, mm. you know, I'm just happy Britney's alive. I don't know. I keep saying I'm not pressed for new music from Britney. I got excited about the buzz, but it is highly produced, super produced. And people are saying that she doesn't even sound like that. They don't even think that's Britney's voice. But I, I, they're asking, when did she even record the song? They don't even know. It's a lot of questions. And even the advertisements, one of the, the image for the single cover uses a photo from her from back in 2003. And if you remember, like I said on my pod, on the podcast last week, for those who listened to that episode, remember when I told y'all that that image from her book, her Britney book, had the same look, um, had a look that was from her 2003 
Britney self-title era. This is the same type of look. And they put it in the picture. They think no one was going to catch it. But of course, the stands we know in the eras. I, I looked at the picture and I thought the picture looked, she looked. See, Britney, we haven't really seen her. I'm not saying she's aged, but it's like, it was too youthful looking. And I was like, because mm, even if you look at her current stuff that she's done, some of those older photos, Britney looked a little bit more mature. It's not aging as in as bad. It's just that she just looks more fuller. Her face is more fuller as a woman. Those older pictures of her, she still was in that teen bop era. So she wasn't fully, her features were not fully pronounced. So I thought that was really weird how they used her image. I was not a fan. Um, the song is okay. It's not a song that's like, oh my God, this is the song of the summer. It's like one of those things that you got on, you just want to hear a little bop, but you're not like got to one and tell the whole world. And there's been like no music videos. And I don't know if there's going to ever be a music video, to be honest. Now on TV, Bad Boys Texas is finally having its conclusion. I wonder if they're going to do a reunion. They didn't do a reunion last time. I think the boys are just tired of each other and fighting. I don't know what I'm going to see and what I can expect. Other news, Martin, okay, Summer House, Martha's Vineyard. Guess what, y'all? There is a season two coming. They did renew the show. I thought this was going to be a one and done thing. But looking back, I get it. For starters, it is a hit on Peacock. It is one of Bravo's most successful shows, like as a new show on the Peacock Network. It is a successful reality show as a new one. It's doing really well. A lot of people are catching up to the show. Um, there was only eight episodes, but a lot of people are going on Peacock and watching it and binge watching it because they've heard how much it is this salacious. Um, I encourage people to watch it on Peacock. Um, I think I get why it got renewed. I think it got renewed because, one, it's a nice little escape from all of the real Housewives bullshit on Bravo. It's also got a really great black, diverse cast, but they're not caught up in too—I mean, it's spicy— but it's also kind of like a little bit more grown and mature and also not so catty that it becomes unrealistic. So there was something about it that is special. It does shake up the norm and it had a really great social media um, interest and involvement with it. And the Bravo team, the, 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 they were very, everybody seemed to be on point. It was a, it was fun to watch. I don't know how they're going to play it out though. Like, does everybody come back? Do they have a new housemates? Do they have a new situation? It's going to be interesting how that unfolds. I don't necessarily need some of these people to come back. I would. I don't know if I really want them to all come back because I feel like what made it great was it was very organic. Like none of them were reality TV like stars. So now I have a funny feeling like they're gonna all come back and it might get cheesy and fake and everybody's gonna know that they're stars and famous. So they're gonna do more and that's gonna ruin the show. The fact that no one knew who they were and they were all had these personalities and people kind of attached themselves to them. That's what made them fun. I feel like if they do Martha's Vineyard. Uh, Summer House Month. I think they should have a whole new cast. I think they should just bring new people and figure it out from there. But for some reason, I don't know, or bring new people connected to them, you know. Because I know, you know, Preston Mitchell, you know, I will be at Martha's Vineyard this summer with my book tour. You know, maybe I can make a cameo. I'm not trying to be on reality TV. I'm not trying to Marlow it. But, you know, look, cameo, you know, while I'm there, you know, you know, or come bring me, bring me over there for a couple of days. Let me shake some shit up. Sign me up. I don't know. Because, you know, I don't know. I've, I, mm, I'll leave it there. Um, love and Hip Hop. You know, like I said, I've, I've really loved this season. Um, they're really, really big on this scrappy Bambi divorce situation, which I'm enjoying. Um, 
I mean, what's hard about this show now is I blame the shade room for this, but like now because everybody's putting their business on social media, a lot of the element of the show has been taken away. And I don't blame them. I think it's like all the reality shows that now the news of stuff going on. And it reminded me of the 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 um, Tamar Braxton show she had where she was looking for love and other girls on the show. And it was the situation where we found out who she was with before the show finished. And I just kind of hate that social media has kind of ruined the suspense of these things, you know, because a lot of times the cast members would have to live far from each other. You know, we couldn't find out who was dating who. Now the, the social media has really have like exposed a lot of stuff. So now we kind of know how things are going to play out before they play out. So this season, it's been looking like they're trying to, you know, Bambi and Scrappy, like try to patch the relationship. Well, we kind of know they don't patch the relationship because social media is showing Scrappy at a strip club having a divorce party. But which is just whatever. But like, I, that's the one thing I'm like trying to figure out. Like, where, why does this not feel the same as it did back in 2012 and 13, 14 when I used to be in my college dorm watching it with my girls, Amanda and them? So that has been my own personal, like, you know, kind of like, you know, eh, kind of moment. Now, last but not least, Jocelyn's Cabaret, New York, had its grand premiere this weekend. Y'all. Jocelyn is doing it, baby. Jocelyn is doing it. She is my toxic fave. I know she ain't shit. She knows she's not shit. We know she's not shit together. And that's just what the show is. It's just giving what it's giving. And at the end of the day, look, you everybody got their vice. And for me, I don't know what her new song going to be because Vegas was everything. Welcome to Vegas, baby. I want to see you, baby. Give me the money. Give me diamonds. Give me rubies, baby. I want to undress. I want to go shopping. Come in the knees and make your knees and make me please me. I want to ride it, baby. I want this. Listen, I played that song out all last year. When I went to Vegas two times, I went to Vegas for my mom's birthday last year. And then I went to a journalism convention in Vegas last year. That was my theme song. That was my mood. It was my attitude. It is a, it is a classic. And a lot of your faves listen to that song. There was a video of Solange, I think, singing the song word for word. The real, the real, the real Jocelyn, there are some secret Jocelyn Hernandez fans. Okay, them ratings, listen, the silent majority is pushing it. So I'm just gonna leave it at that. I have been watching a little bit. Well, I'm not gonna say Amanda gonna say, see, you should be watching. Look. I saw the season premiere of Christian and uh, Blueface. It is a terrible show. And it's terrible, not just on quality, but just it's just not even entertaining. It's not entertaining. See, Jocelyn is a ter- Jocelyn's show is a terrible show, but it's entertaining. This shit, Joc- Christian Blue and Blueface, that show on, on Zoo, and it's all Zoo show, so, you know, you know, spare yourself. But they're, they're like, I'm watching a very violent couple deteriorate in front of us. It's almost as if what you think Rihanna, Rihanna and Chris Brown was going through in their turbulent relationship, if they had a reality show. I just don't understand. This this woman is pregnant. I just, just, it's just too much. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about that baby. Like, I just hope that baby comes out healthy and well. And, you know, it's just too much stress. It's like, it's just a lot. And... You know, Blueface is just a horrible father, a horrible man, just in general. Just like every week there's some new drama with him, like enough, just just a mess. But there's always Jocelyn. So, you know, welcome to Vegas, baby. Um, 
yeah, and in and, and closing, this week is going to be really big. Just stay tuned for all the surprises. There is a big announcement coming out later this week around the book and where it will be coming back to. Um, but I have to be hush hush until they make the reveal, the particular entity that's making this reveal and this announcement about the case for council culture and where it will be at and when. Um, special details coming soon. But, you know, I'm getting, I'm excited about this tour. I'm excited about everything that's going on. And you know, as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode. And check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.